If it's a quiet night out at the beach and your ex-old lady suddenly out of nowhere shows up with a story about her current billionaire land developer boyfriend and his wife and her boyfriend and a plot to kidnap the billionaire and throw him in a loony bin. I need your help, Doc. Maybe you should just look the other way. But if you're Doc, it may all start to get a little peculiar after that. Michael Z. Wolfman. And Mickey Wolfman. Mickey Wolfman. Has vanished. So wh where would I uh, find him? He's technically Jewish, but wants to be a Nazi. And a girl don't necessarily want to get into difficulties with those folks. You have a spare picture I can borrow? Ah! Mm-hmm. Well, maybe you're better off with the Nazis. Whoa. Are you all right? Am I? Are you? Ordinarily, we're the ones asking the questions. And your question is, which side am I on? Good question. Wrong answer. Choto, Kinichiro, Dozo, Moto Penekeku, Moto Penekeku, Moto Penekeku, Hai, Hai, Hai. Doc may not be a do-gooder, but he's done good. But I do know that I love you. And I know that if you love me too, what a wonderful world this would be. Good luck, Doc. What a wonderful world this would be. Coming just in time for Christmas. God, if your life had a face, I would punch it. Yeah. Wait, what? Let me ask you something. Why would you make the point of saying someone's not a genius? You think I'm especially not a genius? Veronica, why are you pulling my dick? Suck my fat one, you cheap dime store hood. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another installment of The Greatest Moments in the History of Forever. I'm Zach. I'm Matt. And this is episode number 175, Inherent Vice. That's right. Appeared on both of our uh, best of the decade lists. That's true. I think we hold this film in very high regard. We're part yeah. of a growing movement of PTA fans who are now recognizing this film as the classic that it is. Well, I definitely remember seeing it in theaters and enjoying it thoroughly, although having no idea what the fuck I just saw. Yeah, this is definitely a film that requires multiple viewings, I think, which is always a tricky yeah. proposition for some people. They don't think that that is good, which I can't necessarily blame them, even though I disagree. I understand that sometimes just insisting upon that much of a commitment from your viewers True. is asking a bit much to be yeah. like, well, you're going to need to watch this at least twice. It can be Maybe tough. more. Yeah. <laughs> Certainly for people like you and I, it's nothing to uh, stress over. But again, you often bring up like, would I recommend this movie? It's like to most people that I talk to, I don't know that I'd be like, 
recommending inherent vice to like my film nerd friends like keith i certainly would but <laughs> well i was gonna say maybe that just speaks to the type of people you're talking to <laughs> well i don't really talk to anybody but well, yeah i anymore. think we saw this movie and yes we didn't fully understand it and i'm sure lots of people who saw it initially didn't fully understand it but we still liked it so yeah. that kind of speaks to the type of film viewers we are sure and i mean i don't know for me, it's Paul Thomas Anderson, it, I've never like sat down and made this list, but he's probably in my f- top five favorite directors of all time, up there with like Kubrick and David Lynch. But certainly, none of those guys are like particularly mainstream. Yeah. Inherent Vice was released in 2014, directed by Paul Thomas Anderson, adapted from a novel by Thomas Pynchon, who was generally considered unadaptable. This was the yeah, first Pynchon novel brought to the screen. And you mentioned this before the show, but I kind of took it that this book is fairly uh, convoluted because you can tell most of this narration and stuff is coming straight from the book. Yeah, I think a lot of characters in his books come in and out. There's a lot of details and a lot of different things. It's just a lot of information. Supposedly, though, he gave his blessing for this movie and there's rumors that he appears somewhere in it. No one really knows what he looks like. He hasn't had his picture taken in like 50 years. Oh, wow. Well, I mean, publicly. I mean, maybe in his family, yeah. <laughs> but no one really knows what he looks like, I guess. It did get nominated for two Academy Awards, which I was surprised by because I didn't really remember that it had Best been. Adapted Screenplay? Yes, okay. and Costume Design. You want to know what I'm a little bit stunned by? No nomination for Cinematography. I think that this movie looks like almost stunningly beautiful yeah there's just a there's a certain feeling to the way that it looks that absolutely it just expresses a wistful longing and a heartbreak in a perfect way even like the blu-ray menu screen where it's like him and shasta (laughs) like sitting by the ocean i was like this just looks amazing i could just leave this as like the backdrop for like my life like all the time yeah And the film was a little bit of a financial disappointment. I think it only brought in $14.7 million on a $20 million budget. I don't remember it being particularly pushed. I don't remember seeing a ton of, like, trailers in the theater. Certainly not a lot of TV spots out there. Yeah. It's part of the stoner noir akin to Big Lebowski. Yeah, a genre we've been talking about more. And Under the Silver Lake and a few other things. And like we said, I mean, it requires multiple viewings, but I feel like the tangled knot of a plot is secondary to the feeling, the pursuit of something undefined, something maddeningly elusive that you can't even quite explain. I think it it traffics in nostalgia and sadness. Absolutely, (laughs) yes. There's a sadness that permeates a lot of the characters, and sometimes it takes a little longer to pick up on it others it's apparent right away whether it's doc or shasta in the opening scene but yeah i think bigfoot's sadness hangs over the film as well well doc sportello he's the lowly loner obviously has taken like an emotional hit from this relationship (laughs) ending that he hasn't quite recovered from okay so i think we both feel like this is probably going to be a pretty jumbo sized detailed episode it's going to be a lot I would recommend you at least try to watch this film once before listening to this if you haven't seen it yet. It's a wild ride. It's a wild ride. We're going to do our best. There's going to be a lot of quotes read by me. I used a lot of different sources to pull this all together. 
when we go through the plot, I'm going to preemptively explain things that aren't revealed yet to, to so that we don't have to circle back all oh, yeah. the time to try to just keep pushing it in one direction as best I can. I know rewatching this uh, recently was just like, man, there are a lot of plot points in this movie. Yeah, it's not unlike a lot of these other private eye noir detective yeah. movies where there's a lot of diversions and sometimes the diversions relate to the main story more times than others but i think both pension and pta saw this as like well we got to come up with reasons to get him from one girl to flirt with to the next yes which is how a lot of detective noir stories are it's inexplicable why he's making out all of a sudden with Luz in the closet at, <laughs> at Sloan's house. I love house. it, though. But yeah, but I it's just, use, that's the type of movie it is. I could use like 80% more Luz. Uh, I yeah. On her. For some reason, I thought there was more. Yeah. She's mentioned again. Yeah, you always want there to be more. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, this movie, it's got a lot of talking points. We'll try to hit as many as we can. I'm just giving that as kind of a an upfront disclaimer. I would recommend watching the film first. But before we start, let's remind our listeners to follow the show on Twitter at Greatest Pod. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, iTunes. Give us a rating and review if you can. Things really heating up. It's true. This episode should be released on Oscar Day. Yeah. And so we will do part three of our multi-part give us a second look back at the year 2019. That will be coming up soon, yeah. and we're just going to keep rolling with these really? apps. Yeah. Recording this on a day in February when it was 61 degrees kind of has me longing for spring, and I feel like this movie just in like California on the beach, Yeah, I don't know. I I feel like my, my mood, and, and you know, just me kind of being in a perpetually uh, poignant state, I feel like my mood was, was really vibing with the mood of the movie. Yeah, I mean, I feel like I'm forever vibing with the mood of the yeah. movie. <laughs> that little narration that Joanna Newsom does at the end about the passage of time. Oh, God. <laughs> At Playa Vista High, Shasta made class beauty in the yearbook four years running. Always got to be the ingenue in school plays, fantasize like everybody else about getting into the movies. And soon as she could manage it, was off, up the freeway, looking for some low-rent living space in Hollywood. Doc, aside from being just about the only doper she knew who didn't use heroin, which freed up a lot of time for both of them, had never figured out what else she might have seen in him. Not that they were even together that long. Soon enough, she was answering casting calls and getting some theater work, on stage and off. And they each gradually located a different karmic thermal above the megalopolis, gliding each into a different fate. Inherent Vice is overwhelming the first time you see it. I think it's easier if you just let it wash over you and you try to experience the emotions rather than trying to figure out the plausibility of everything and how everything connects together and mapping out a plot. Yeah, it's tough. The plot comes and goes with you. There are times you feel like you have it pinned down a little bit and then it slides through your fingers and you're like, well, I'm not quite sure about this part of it. What is the golden fang? It could be any number of things as explained to us throughout the movie. Is Shasta Faye alive or dead? Who knows? Is any of this <laughs> stuff going on with Doc Sportello real? Yeah, how, how much, much of, it of it is a hallucination? How much of it isn't? 
I, who knows? I mean, a lot of the details around his life seem like unbelievable. Yeah. He's a private investigator. I, it doesn't seem like clients are like lining up at the door, although he has a decent amount of them in this movie, shockingly. Yeah. Somehow has like, I mean, I know it's like a bit of a shanty, but he lives like right on the beach. Well, it was a different time. Yeah. There were sections of the beach that were probably more accessible for poor people. Not now. No. Everything's been claimed. And His, this beach is fictional. Gordita Beach is not a real place. Yeah, that's interesting. This takes place in Los Angeles, right? But it seems like a couple of the areas that they mention are fictional. Yeah. I also, the fact that his office is at a doctor's office. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we don't get a lot of the potential backstory that could be filled in. How did in uh, a, how does in a novel versus a book? How does one become a novel versus a movie? Doc's Portello? Yeah, where, that's a where story does the like nickname come from? Yeah. And it's deceptively hilarious. There's funny parts totally. throughout it. Paul Thomas Anderson, man, it's just like a master of tone. He can like operate in all these different tones in one yeah. movie and like kind of seamlessly swerve in and out of different tones. I don't know. It's not like jarring. Like you, you're able to just go with it. It's like a smooth transition. The film follows Larry Doc Sportello, played by Joaquin Phoenix, who I don't even think we've mentioned by name. Okay. Who was actually really good in this movie oh it's yeah a, it's an underrated performance from him he gets a lot of recognition for her for walk the line the master for the master for this year joker which as of this recording the oscars haven't happened but it seems like he's the front runner oh wow for best actor i just feel like he's really good in this movie and i it think sort so. of was slept on by a lot of people but he's a stoner hippie and private investigator in the year 1970 who was embroiled in the Los Angeles criminal underworld while investigating three cases interrelated by the disappearance of his ex-girlfriend and her wealthy boyfriend. And throughout the film, he partakes in various drugs. There's a lot of possible hallucinations. A lot of the movie is built upon paranoia and the yeah. feeling of paranoia. Also, his like self-awareness of his own dealings with paranoia and hallucinations. <laughs> yeah, which is sort of where it connects to... Under the Silver Lake, which is like I would say a spiritual brother to this movie. Like if you're having to take notes, asking yourself if you're hallucinating. <laughs> well, I wasn't sure that when he wrote hallucinate if he meant like he was or Tariq Khalil was. I don't know because the the scene that Tariq <laughs> Khalil was describing was also strange. I was <laughs> true. I was thinking that would be like a great movie prop to have, like Doc Sportello's <laughs> notebook, little notepad. We were talking a little bit before we started recording about Inherent Vice as a companion piece to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It's California in the dark shadow of the Manson murders. Charlie himself is name-checked a few times in Inherent Vice. Yeah. The 60s hangover. Well, we're actually starting to see the uh, negative downturn that doesn't happen, that's avoided by the events <laughs> of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. A few stragglers of the peace and love movement who never got the memo that the times have changed. The scene is turned rotten and a little scary. There's heroin, PCP. Flat top haircuts are in. Bad trips, skinheads and bikers, ex-cons, government conspiracies. Basically, out of everything that happened in the late 60s, the bad guys won. How this all applies to Shasta Faye and some of the other characters, it seems like they're swept up into this yeah. world, either unwillingly or semi-willingly. Shasta seems like she had some degree of willingness to become yeah, part I mean, of it. Yeah, I mean, semi-willingly. Although I think 
if you believe that every scene with her is real, you can kind of deconstruct her feelings, her potential regret or second thoughts yeah. about some of this stuff. Inherent Vice speaks to a marine insurance term, meaning things that can't be insured due to their nature, like eggs breaking, Yeah, as sort of Liege puts uh, it in that, the narration. That's part of uh, marine law, actually. <laughs> But uh, it's also, it speaks to a fatal flaw. Yeah. And it's when a great, it's applied to a person, what does that mean right. exactly? I think it's a great <laughs> title, though. It, it works so well for a movie name. Inherent Vice can be applied to Shasta, but it can also be applied to the bummer days of 1970 within, I don't know, I'm going off the top of my head, I think it's a year and a half time span. Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, and Jim Morrison all die. The Beatles break up. Basically, everything that people were fighting for and believed in kind of gets kicked to the curb, and Vietnam yeah. is still in full swing. These times, they are changing. And the 70s seem like a real bad trip compared to the yeah. optimistic feeling I think a lot of people had at the end of the 60s. And a lot of this movie is about how the counterculture is commodified and sold back to the former hippies who made it out alive. This is shown explicitly a few times whether it's bigfoot's commercial for the channel view estates at the beginning <laughs> yeah. of the movie where he's co-opting hippie slang terms to sell apartments or condos or adrian prussia the unseen heavy until the end of the movie yeah who is using terms like psychedelic and out of sight and stuff oh, when know. he's probably Groovy. planning on killing people or whatever the fuck else he does by the way josh brolin just uh really bringing it for this role yeah for me i know this movie is divisive i think it's pta's lowest score on rotten tomatoes except for, i don't know maybe hard eight is lower but even i think maybe i'm wrong but even punch drunk love might have a higher score oh, but wow. this was like down into like the 70s where his movies are usually in the 90s or above oh yeah i just don't get it i get like your regular moviegoers who really love simple things and marvel and and regular type movies not really being into it and that's understandable and fine i'm not even passing judgment but for people that write about movies and think about movies yeah, and are obsessed with movies enough to go into a career you would think this would about writing about for those people <laughs> yeah. i just don't get it i think it's hard for me to take someone seriously as a movie fan and movie obsessive if they don't get into this movie yeah there's just so know. much there. The, like, cause I, the reason I brought that up was because you brought up Roland's performance. I think every performance in this movie is great. Oh, yeah. The and soundtrack is awesome. Really? It looks awesome. Even people who, who don't have that big of parts in the movies, like showing up and giving like pretty great performances in small roles. Benicio Del Toro <laughs> as, the, <laughs> as his lawyer. Martin Short. Yeah. I even love... Oh, who's the blonde? His girlfriend from the DA's office. Oh, Reese Witherspoon. Yeah, I just, uh, <laughs> Reese Witherspoon. Yeah, I think there's a lot to enjoy here, and you just kind of have to let go of your pre-existing feelings about needing the plot to all connect and make sense right away and all be readily available to see without having to jump to conclusions in your mind right. or or speculate or try to piece it together yourself. I think it is kind of like a jigsaw puzzle, but it's given to you with some of the pieces missing, and the fun is trying to fill in those pieces. As to, like, well, what does this mean? How could this have happened? Like, what are the possibilities that would have led to this? Yeah, it's definitely 
keeping you on the edge at all times because it, it just feels like things keep happening without explanation and you're finding yourself questioning what's reality. But but then there's a lot of scenes that just sort of happen and things feel normal. Yeah, the genius of the movie, though, is that it all could be real. Right. It doesn't rely, like, so heavily on that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yes, early on in the movie, Bigfoot does talk to Doc through the TV for a second, and that clearly is not real. But yeah, right. it's not like it's using that gimmick, though, to be like, well, I don't know. You know, it's really just leaving it up to you. It's not so fantastical or absurd that you're like, oh, this whole part is definitely not real. Yeah. You're like, well, maybe they didn't really say that, or maybe this little piece of it didn't happen. But you can definitely view this as if it's all happening. I mean, there's that's definitely a sure, valid absolutely. reading of the film. What do you think the history of Sportello and Bigfoot is? I think they've probably just crossed paths on some cases. Working in the same industry. Their relationship is definitely complicated, and I think there's more affection there on both sides than it seems on the surface, but in this recent rewatching of the film a few times, it's becoming clearer to me that Bigfoot is like a big driving force as to like what is pushing yeah. Doc in certain directions the well, whole there's, time. He's definitely doing it throughout the movie, but there's that whole part where he says, I think it's time we have one of our talks. And yeah. they like me, and he's basically like actually giving him information. Yes. And giving him like suspects, basically. Yes. And Doc is thinking that it all is related to Coy Harlingen, but it's really related to Bigfoot's, Bigfoot's, Bigfoot's former, former partner. partner. But he can't explain this to Doc because then Doc would probably fuck it up or wouldn't want to get involved with it. Doc is kind of this unknowing pawn in this larger game that bigfoot is playing yes. to get revenge for this partner who he was like probably in love with okay right There's so certain context clues that yeah, yeah. Maybe, maybe that was the case <laughs> but okay so one of the major changes from the novel was positioning the minor character of sort of liege played yeah. by joanna newsom as the narrator speaking of are things real a lot of questions here. <laughs> There's a lot of ways to interpret the sort of Liege character. One of my new working theories is that she is a real person. Yeah. She is his friend. She does know the people he knows, like Dinas and Shasta <laughs> Faye. But when she's doing certain narrations, that's just the voice that Doc yeah. hears in his head. She's like the voice of his conscience. Probably because she has a cool voice. Like I she think just so. sounds good. Right. <laughs> But there are parts of it that present evidence for either way of if is she there or not. Because there's times where they're driving in a car, she's talking to him, and then just gone. a cut happens, and then she's just not there. There's no explanation. You don't see her getting dropped off somewhere. Well, that's the other thing. It's like we randomly have like some flashbacks in the movie, and some of this shines a light on the time when Doc and Shasta were actually together. Yeah, well, there's just the one. Yeah. The Ouija board sequence. Right. That's but, the only flashback. But yeah, Sword of Liege is in that too. Yeah. But then there's some other scenes where she's hanging out with him and Dennis. Yeah, at the beginning. Yeah. After Shasta first comes in the season. Okay, but like, so she's still in the in So the what mix. I'm saying is there's parts where you can be like, well, she's not real because she just disappears. But like, I think we were talking about this before we started recording. There's yeah. also parts where she provides him information that he did not know. He's told the at one point. The narrator version of her. But well, that's the thing. Is there, yeah. well, there might not be two versions. You could say that she's just sort of Liege, or his friend, and she's telling us the story after the fact. Okay, yeah. And so her narration is real, but he doesn't hear it. Right. 
Or you could say it's the sound of the voice in his head, or it's both. Yeah, because there's definitely parts where it's almost doing like inner monologue for him. Yeah, and she is giving details to things where it's like, would he have really ever told her all of these details? He seems like he would forget this stuff immediately because he's stoned all the time. (laughs) So it's almost like she was there, but you know she's not there because you're watching the scene happen. Like when he's at Sloan and Mickey's house... While the LAPD are like jumping in the pool, and <laughs> yeah, she's giving a lot of detailed narration. It's like, well, she wouldn't know this stuff, so she does seem like omnipotent or something, right? Do you think Doc would be able to like retell someone? That's what I mean. Like, no, happened? yeah, <laughs> that's why it's like she knows details of the stuff. But yeah. Shasta Face says it at the end of the movie, where <laughs> right. she's like, no, Doc, she knows things. Like, she says it in a way where you're like. Yeah, yeah, she does know things. That's but right. How does she know this? Stuff? <laughs> For anyone that's been paying attention to the movie, but it's changed from the book. Like he took this minor character that way he could present Pynchon's words, yeah, as they were written in the book. And, and thank again, I, I say it many times, but thank goodness for subtitles because this is another one where it's just like if you're just like listening to this, you have to pay attention to all the lines. It too. is tough. Yeah. It's one of those movies where information will fly by in half a sentence, and if you didn't pick up on it, it could be something major down the line. So, yeah. Yeah. I did watch it with subtitles a couple times. Yeah, I I mean, watching it the first time and just, like, listening to it, you're like, Glenn Sharlock, what? (laughs) Now? (laughs) (laughs) That you, Shasta? Thinks he's hallucinating. No, just a new package, I guess. I need your help, Doc. Uh, You know, I have an office now. That's like a day job and everything. I looked in the phone book. I almost went over there. Then I thought better for everyone if this looks like a secret rendezvous. Somebody keeping a close eye? Just spent an hour on surface streets trying to make it look good. The movie opens with the words on the screen, Gordita Beach, 1970. As I mentioned, it's a fictional place. Just a really almost melancholy shot between two shanties showing the beach. I know, I love it. You definitely get a sense of the vibe of the movie initially right off the bat. And I love this opening scene this opening scene is is incredible because right away doc what is he doing he's just (laughs) laying there staring out the window in this forlorn way like this blue light kind of falling over him yeah i feel like i do that every day (laughs) (laughs) just kind of sadly looking at the window and out of the blue how often is like shasta fey showing up at your apartment not anymore no out of the blue comes Shasta Faye Hepworth, a vision, a ghost from Doc's past, unannounced, looking different than when he knew her. When did he know her? That's kind of... How much time has it been? Yeah, that fluctuates depending on when it's mentioned. Sometimes I know, it's, it's months, months, sometimes it's years. <laughs> but she's wearing flatland gear. In other words, she's not really dressed like a hippie. She's dressed like a straight person yeah, at like this a normie. point. Basically how she always said that she would never look. She's afraid. She's talking about someone watching. There's already this baked-in paranoia to everything. Everyone's acting as if... <laughs> Which it's 
every action they take is this big deal that people would be interested in. People are in. watching and like recording their actions. Yeah. It gives this strange sense of purpose to everything as if what they're doing is so important. And it, in reality, that it seems like that couldn't be further from the truth. It, but know. we don't know. I mean, Mickey if Wolfman... If everything she says is true, then... Yeah. yeah. Mickey Wolfman definitely seems like there's some things going on there. I mean, he's a big time mogul, but... Before we get into the specific conversation, let's just run through real quick, and I guess we can debate it and provide a little bit of evidence and stuff, but let's go through the Shasta Faye possibilities. So, number one, uh-huh. every time we see her in the film is real. This is how you would take it the first time you watch the movie, for sure. Oh, yeah. There's no reason really to question it that much the first time you watch the movie, but the more times you watch it, you do pick up on things like... When she comes back into Doc's life, no one else ever talks to her. Yeah. She's never in scenes with other people during this time. Not around. I tend to think, and we'll go once we go through these possibilities, I tend to think that her being real, at least for most of it, or at least some of it, is essential to the movie making any kind of sense and having any kind of purpose. If he's just propelling himself in this direction without any outside motivation it feels hollower to me like yes it's sad in a way but it kind of loses some of the impact and the importance now i I mean i hope for doc's sake that at least the second scene happens (laughs) yeah (laughs) the second possibility is this opening scene the first time we see her is the only time that's real now there is a lot of evidence to support this claim that the other times in the film are not real when she returns later to the scene you were talking about She's wearing the outfit that sort of says that she used to wear. The lower half of a bikini and a yep. Country Joe and the Fish t-shirt. Her hair seems longer, which is also okay. something yeah. sort of right. specifically mentioned. And, of course, it does play out like a very specific type of fantasy. Sexual fantasy. Where, I mean, we'll get to that scene later, but it's a, it's a semi-controversial scene, but it speaks to a very specific thing. Yes. And also, as I said, no one else ever sees her or talks to her. The ending is is very ambiguous, and there are mentions throughout the film of this time period in the late 60s, early 70s, where people would kind of drop out of sight and disappear, or they would die and you wouldn't know. It is strange, It's though. the pre-information age. Yeah. You wouldn't necessarily know different stuff about people. They would just kind of vanish. It is strange, though, that Bigfoot calls him while she's there that second time and says... I hear your girl's back in town. Yes, that would definitely support the every time we see her is real scenario. Meaning he was put onto this Mickey Wolfman thing by her, not by his own volition. And Bigfoot's phone call when she's back, that actually happens when she's there. Yeah. That does seem to confirm that she went somewhere and came back alive. If you do go through possibility number three, which is she's never real in the entire movie... That doesn't necessarily mean that she's dead or that she dies during the movie or anything like that. It could mean that. And there are references to drowning. And in that last scene between her and Doc at the end of the movie, she does say it feels like being underwater. Okay. But I don't know. (laughs) I think depending on how you interpret the Shasta Faye thing affects how you interpret other things throughout the movie. I don't really even have a strong... I don't know. Opinion uh, one way or the other. I definitely think she's at least real in the first scene. Right. I do not subscribe to the fact that she's not real at all. Even the second scene feels mostly real to me, even though it's insane and kind well, of Well, there's disturbing. a certain 
poignant feeling that you lose yeah. if none of it's real. Because After I think that's... in a weird way it's sadder if they're just doomed to never really right. ca- recapture what they used to have. Is it possible that the second scene happens and then she just kind of drifts out of his life again? Anything's possible. Okay. I don't I know if like... there's specific evidence for that, but I think anything is uh, on the table. I don't know. I just feel like the interactions are all different after that. Like, she still seems sort of weird, and there's a dark a darkness there in that scene. Well, I think scene. that's just <laughs> describing who she's become. <laughs> yeah. Um, weird and darkness. You see some shots of them together afterwards, and then obviously, like, the way the movie ends, it, it feels like there's happiness between the two that it's it's hard to believe. See, I don't, I don't read happiness at the end at all, really. I mean, other than she smiles very briefly when he makes the joke. It's like the end of The Graduate. Kind of, yeah. You know? It is kind of like the end of The Graduate. A brief smile, but really just like reality setting in. I don't know. That, that end scene doesn't really feel real to me at all. The end of the Silver Lake comparisons are here for sure because we talked about it very briefly in our best of 2019 list, but the whole element pushing that movie forward is kind of similar this heartbreak this sadness i think the effect that shasta Faye had on doc is much bigger than it seems at first and much bigger than he claims to other people i do like when sancho later is like i thought you were done with this sad bullshit because oh, yeah. <laughs> that is like such a thing like your friend would right, say yeah you're like it's been seven years <laughs> like what the fuck's wrong with you <laughs> it's like oh, come on sancho <laughs> yeah you don't get it But much of the film feels like it's about sadness, grief, loss, nostalgia. That ties in with Bigfoot's former partner who was murdered and everything going on with Coy Harlingen, Owen Wilson's character as well. Oh, yeah. Except I think there's definitely like a poignant moment at the end where he returns Coy back to his family. Yes, that's And he's happy, but Phoenix gives like this perfect face as he's like waiting in the car as if like... He's happy that he could do this, but there's no happiness really waiting for him. Right. It's kind of this reserved. There's something about expression. that that even as a viewer, there's some fulfillment from sticking it out for this ridiculous story. Bringing that to conclusion, there's definitely some feeling of resolve there. But yeah, then you're kind of left with Sportello, and it's like, what's he gonna do? And the, and something happens. But what you're supposed to take away from it, I don't know. Yeah, even if every time we see Shasta Faye in the movie is 100% real, then at the very best, it's a portrayal of a doomed relationship Yeah, that they've already gone too far. And maybe stopped There's using no drugs. going back from where they've been. Right. You know what I mean? Yes. Like, yeah, they had this kind of angry, emotional sex that, like, sort of purged some demons but yeah that's a hard one to turn back from i feel like the moves that she pulled yeah and the joy that she got out of fucking with him about it if that's what she's doing there's a lot we'll get to that i've certainly dated some girls like that yeah (laughs) i think you know what i think everybody right (laughs) if if there's one thing we could take out of this is that women are evil that whole part where she's describing all this stuff and he's like guys love hearing this shit <laughs> it, it really i was like man I, yeah i have had some of these conversations where it's just like shut up already i don't want to hear this well one thing that i noticed is that there are definitely two at least two maybe more scenes in the movie where we see a different side of doc that we don't see through the rest of the film where he plays this laid-back cool customer stoner guy who seems pretty carefree 
and then in that moment he loses his cool a little bit where oh, yeah. she just like goads this out of him and then at the end very end when he he shows you that he's got a little bit of badass in him when he takes care of business totally with puck beaverton and adrian Prussia. kind of in a way that you never would have expected yeah it's like it's letting something out there too so Shasta, we're still on the first scene. Wow, yeah. Although Shasta we've talked has, about a lot of other scenes. Shasta has come to Doc because in addition to being a hippie, he's a private investigator. Sort of Liege makes the joke that instead of being a gumshoe, he's a gum sandal. Okay, I love it. Shasta tells Doc that her new lover, a rich and powerful real estate developer named Mickey Wolfman, might soon be the victim of a money-grabbing scheme perpetrated by Mickey's wife, Sloane, and her boyfriend on the side. In this scheme, Mickey would be abducted and committed to an insane asylum while they took his money. Kind of crazy. There's a mention here by Sword of Liege in the narration about Shasta's emotions here, and there's definitely like an allusion to something more troubling that will become clearer as the movie plays out. And she yeah, just like kind of the, goes, don't ask. That's not the worst of it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, she's just like, don't ask. And you can let your imagination run wild. I think she alludes to it again when she comes back later. Right. And when she's laying out all of her sins to him. This is, uh, by the way, some life that Mickey Wolfman is leading. <laughs> you know what I mean? When you get yeah. a look at his tie collection later... <laughs> something to be desired shasta is also aware that doc is currently dating deputy da penny kimball played by reese witherspoon and so yeah. there's hope I'm that a maybe big penny kimball fan penny can get involved and prevent this from happening yeah it's unclear even to doc though like what he's supposed to do about this he's like so you want me to what stop this from happening like i don't know what, right, what right. i'm supposed to do so I'm going to read a couple of quotes throughout this. You know, I know that maybe my quote reading is not everyone's favorite part. Oh, I don't know. I'm not <laughs> but I feel like with this movie, I needed to drag in a lot of sources. When we did the Inside Lewin Davis episode, I specifically mentioned the article by Kim Morgan on thenewbev.com. Oh, yeah. So this is the first one from that. And this is mostly about sort of... I don't know, what we've been talking about with how complicated the movie is. She says, Obfuscation is a bomb. Paranoia or conspiracy or lamenting the tangled reasons and non-reasons and imagined reasons for the end of a relationship, thinking of the past, of ghosts, often these types of rabbit holes are comforting, as long as they don't become sinkholes. And often all can intertwine in a rambling interior narrative of connections and what-if thinking that busies your mind from what you're frequently avoiding, pain. Wistful memories are a lot more soothing even if they make you sad. In Paul Thomas Anderson's Inherent Vice, hippie, stoner, romantic P.I., Doc Sportello listens when his ex walks back into his life and bringing a labyrinthian mystery says, it isn't what you're thinking, Doc. He answers, don't worry, thinking comes later. It does, and sooner rather than later. Thinking that becomes muddied and strange and absurd and hilarious and ominous and beautiful and ugly, and what does this mean? <laughs> Well, I've definitely been stuck in some of these uh, sinkholes in my life. <laughs> I think you're talking to King Sinkhole yeah. over here <laughs> since I've been like 22. That's right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think there's a certain type of person that's going to ride the wave of inherent vice, and there's others that are going to drown under it. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah, yeah. Doc learns that everything is connected, and yet nothing is connected at all. He's pointed to Channel View Estates to find mickey wolfman 
But it just so happens that Doc's frenemy from the LAPD, Bigfoot Bjornsson, played by Josh Brolin, moonlights as an, an aspiring actor. He does the commercials for Channel View Estate, so there's already a connection. Yeah. And <laughs> the very next day, Tariq Khalil, a member of the Black Gorilla family, just so happens to come to Doc's office to hire him to find a guy named Glenn Sharlock, a member of the Aryan Brotherhood Tariq met in jail who now owes him money. In Glenn kind of is a, one of Mickey Wolfman's bodyguards. Really uh, unexpected alliance between these two characters. Yeah. Previously, anyway. And this is where Doc jots down in his notebook paranoia alert when he yeah. mentions Mickey Wolfman because why is this all happening at one time? Right. I've had a lot of different theories about Tariq. We can circle back to it later, maybe. He doesn't actually appear again in the film after this scene. It's Michael K. Williams who played Omar That's right. yes. from The Wire. A brief appearance, but a memorable one. I was trying to convince myself that maybe Bigfoot put him up to it, but that doesn't really connect with other things in the movie. It just seems like a crazy coincidence. I'm not really sure where it's coming from. It does seem odd. But again, it's like a lot of this feels odd because it's just like he operates out of a doctor's office. Maya Rudolph <laughs> works at the front desk in just a, a memorable appearance by her. He's walking through the office and the other doctors are addressing him. Doctor? 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 I don't know. It just seems crazy. But where this all leads and how this ends for him at the next scene, it definitely feels like he was being placed here on purpose. Yes. And that is confirmed after the fact. However, that's why I was trying to figure out who is pushing him in this direction at the beginning. Because I don't know. I think like there are probably some people that either have this figured out or have their own theories that maybe think that we're stupid for not figuring all this stuff out. (laughs) Oh, please. Is Shasta being serious? Is Tariq working of his own volition? That's two people pushing him in the direction of Wolfman and the Channel View Estates to find this Glenn Sharlock guy who just so happens is going to be the target of a murder that they're going to yeah. put Doc at the crime scene at. But that feels intentional to get the heat off of... We'll get there. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, my uh, mind is The whole point is not to really... Slip. To, to not frame Doc for this murder. It's to give them an out to not pursue it further. Okay, right. And I feel like that's part of Bigfoot's plan for some reason. Well, it is weird. Because I mean, he's the cop that shows up. For being a suspect at the scene of a murder, laying next to the body, essentially, Yeah, he kind of gets off rather easy. Yeah, but who lets him off? Bigfoot, right. So it's, it feels like this is all part of the plan. This is the first instance of the disappearing Sword of Liege on the way over to Channel View Estates where they're talking about Tariq's block just disappearing and the reclamation of different areas of Los Angeles for the betterment, quote-unquote, oh, yeah. of the community, whether it's pushing the Mexican families out of Chavez Ravine for Dodger Stadium or Tariq's gang's old territories in right. Artesia. So we seeing some of the uh, themes of gentrification. yes. But halfway through this drive, she's just not in the car anymore. <laughs> so there's any number of possibilities as to what's going on there. I feel like we've addressed it. Right. At as Channel best we can. V- at Channel View Estates, there isn't much there yet, except there's one operating business, and it's called Chick Planet Massage. Yeah, quite a business. Which seems basically just like a whorehouse, I guess, unless... I don't know. Well, it's interesting because they're not even... When he goes to the front desk, it's not like they're offering him a massage. They're offering him the pussy eater special. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, I'm Jade. Welcome to Chick Planet Massage. 
please take note of today's Pussy Eater special, which is good all day till closing mm, time. How much is it? $14.95. Well, not that $14.95 ain't a totally groovy price, but I'm actually trying to locate this guy who works for Mr. Wolfman. Oh, does he eat pussy? Fellow named Glenn Sherlock. Oh, sure, Glenn. He comes in here. He eats pussy. Well, Glenn and I were in Chino around the same time. You seen him today? Are you a cop? Nope. The reason I ask is if you were a cop, you'd be entitled to a free preview of our Pussy Eater special. Well, how about a license PI? Hey, Bambi! <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, so, um, where do we, um... Uh, not you, bum brain. Oh, oh. So oh. I thought it was here, which is a uh, procedure specials. What that means is. Uh, is uh, uh, mm. This is where we first meet Jade, a character that I find to be very funny and likable. I enjoy Jade, yeah. And yet it blows my mind seeing her in this first scene thinking, yeah, this is a character that's going to show up in other scenes. Oh, yeah. It definitely doesn't feel like that kind of a character. In fact, sticks around pretty much till the end of the movie. <laughs> yeah, I like the way where he's asking her about Glenn Sharlock, and he's like, oh, yeah, he eats pussy. <laughs> and then later at that house in Topanga Canyon where he's asking if Coy Harlingen is there, and she's like, yeah, he's in the kitchen. Like, the way that she talks is, like, so funny <laughs> right. to me. I love it. As he's distracted by Jade and her companion here, Bambi, giving a free preview of the Pussy Eater special, he's sort of wandering around, and there's a sneak attack from behind with a baseball bat. We will, of course, meet a character later in the film who kind has of a proclivity to for, using yes. a baseball bat. So this is the setup. Adrian Prussia is a contract killer who we have not met yet. None of this is revealed, but this is what I was talking about when I said I was just going to explain things the first time okay. so I don't have to circle That's back. Right. So basically, Glenn Sharlock is killed. And this is something that I took fr from Reddit. A Reddit user named Dylan taught me. At what point was Glenn killed, though? At this point. Okay. In, within this time period. Yeah, I know. But like, as Doc is entering this place, we already see that like police are closing in on it. Yeah, but this was all... It doesn't... I mean, he could yeah, have been okay. dead for like an hour. I mean, I don't know. It doesn't right. really matter. Yeah. Okay, so this is from Reddit. This sort of explains the situation here. The person that kills Glenn Sharlock is Adrian Prussia. Doc is hit with a bat, and a bat is Prussia's weapon of choice, which is something we find out later. Prussia is a hired hitman by the LAPD, which we also find out later. He usually kills political targets. Glenn was running guns and Protechnik Wolfman. In the book, fellow Wolfman associate and Aryan brother Puck Beaverton warns Glenn to stop doing this. We don't get that scene in the movie. Yeah. However, we later learn in the movie that Puck switch shifts with Glenn on that specific day. This is when Glenn's sister comes to see Doc. So many things. Prussia was hired to kill Glenn because Glenn was working with black nationalists, which is something we learned from Tariq, which in a sense was betraying Golden Fang, who was responsible for everything bad in the movie and in America. <laughs> when you lay it out like this, it all makes so much sense. Later in this episode, I'll give a Paul Thomas Anderson quote regarding the Golden Fang. Okay. The Golden Fang is this... Thing. dentist syndicate <laughs> well no i mean it's just this thing right it's anything and everything it's ev it's it's a boat i know it's an yeah. indochino heroin cartel well, at one and point it's a when sportello like they have the classic scene from a 
crime investigation where someone's like putting things up on the board and trying to connect them together. And of course, like the Doc Sportello version of this is like incoherent. But at one point, it's like Golden Fang with, and it just like there's arrows that says dentist and boat. <laughs> How does this all relate to Shasta? Well, we don't know yet. Although in time, we will kind of get a sense of it. It all relates to Shasta, though, for me. So Doc wakes up next to Glenn Sherlock's corpse. The police are already there. Bigfoot takes him in. This is where we first see Brolin as Bigfoot. He interrogates Doc. Yeah, and his lawyer shows up. We find out Wolfman has disappeared, and Benicio del Toro playing Sancho Sm- Smilax, his attorney who An specializes in marine law, yeah. <laughs> bird law. <laughs> yeah, the whole scene there where they're going back and forth. I'm gonna and kick him. That's assault. Do you think Glenn and Shasta were, you know, f u c k i n g ing, <laughs> fucking And then before you even see del toro walking up in that like insane red jacket right. brolin looks up and goes what the fuck <laughs> but do you think that glenn and shasta were like f-u-c-k-i-n-g fucking is that why you killed him i just how does it make you feel? I mean, here you are still carrying the torch, and there she is in the company of all those Nazi lowlifes. You give me a hard on. Tough little wop monkey, as my friend Fatso Judson always says. So while suspect, that's you, was having alleged midday nap so necessary to the hippie lifestyle, some sort of incident occurs in the vicinity of Channel View Estates. Firearms are discharged. When the dust settles, we find one Glenn Sherlock deceased. But more compellingly for LAPD is the man Sherlock was supposed to be guarding. Michael Z. Wolfman has vanished, giving local law enforcement less than 24 hours before the feds call it a kidnapping and come in to fuck everything up. So perhaps, Sportello, you can help forestall this by providing the names of the other members of your cult. Cult? No one would ever be stupid enough to attempt this alone, which suggests some kind of Mansonoid conspiracy. Wouldn't you agree? No. Look, I, I've been referred to more than one time by the LA Times as a Renaissance detective, okay? Which means I am many things. One thing I am not is stupid. So purely out of noblesse oblige, I extend this assumption to cover you as well. What the fuck? Hey, Sanj. What's up, Doc? You know you have no case here. So if you're gonna charge him, you bet him. Otherwise, you have to let him go. Mm, Sanch, remember who this is you're talking to? That's Bigfoot Bjornsson, Renaissance cop. I know he is. So, what's the beef here exactly? It doesn't have much to do with your specialty, which I understand is marine law. We got plenty of crime on the high seas, Lieutenant. Okay, well, so far we have murder and kidnapping. We can work in pirates if it would make you more comfortable. Either way, it's high profile. Yeah, but um, given your history of harassment with my client, this will never make it to trial. No, I think we could probably take this all the way to trial, but with our luck, you know, the jury pool will be 99% hippie. Unless you change the venue to maybe like uh, Orange County, not as many hippies down there, you know? So who are you working for? Clients pay me for work, Doc. Clients pay me for work, Doc. So? 
I've decided I'm going to kick Mr. Splatoon. You want to kick him? That's assault. No, I think it's police slang, Sanch. It means coming loose. I release the suspect at the impound garage. Promise? I promise. I think that some people probably had a hard time with this movie because it's so funny, but it's presented in a way that you're not sure if it's supposed well, to be Well, you're not funny. really expecting it to be funny based on the general melancholy feel to it yeah. at other times. The sadness at the center of the film at times truly circles around Bigfoot. Most of all, maybe even more than Doc and Shasta, he is in mourning over the death of his partner on the force, a man who you could make a reasonable case that Bigfoot might have been in love with. And it only comes out in bits and pieces at first. Yeah. Slowly over time. They're uh, leaning heavily in that direction when Doc is riding in a car with Bigfoot and (laughs) Bigfoot is enjoying a phallic treat. (laughs) Chocolate covered frozen banana. Is Bigfoot the architect of Doc's involvement? Is he the unseen guiding force that is helping Doc tie all of these disparate threads together? There are certain similarities in their situations. Doc is mourning the end of a relationship. If you buy into certain other theories, he could be mourning the loss of Shasta as well. There's definitely a way to read this movie that Doc only hears what he wants to hear and disregards the rest, to paraphrase Simon and Garfunkel. Shasta Faye, she's uh, she's gone. Yeah, people have referenced that scene as yeah. if he is really telling her that she's dead and he kind of is inventing the rest of it. Okay. There's no real way to prove or disprove any of this stuff, sure. though. It's all kind of floating in it's the air. It's a fun conversation piece, though. Yeah. So as you mentioned, Bigfoot calls Doc after Doc is released, and Shasta has vanished, too. And then after he gets off the phone with Bigfoot, which, it's, I mean, it is a funny scene if you take it at face value because he's acting like Shasta was found dead. Right. And then, like, he finally lets it out like, yeah, that, yeah. He's just, that she's just missing. And Doc is just, like, at that point, like, a tear is streaming down his face. And yeah, he's right. just like, Bigfoot, what the fuck? Because they do seem to like each other and seem to kind of be friends, but there is sort of a nasty streak to some of it, <laughs> especially oh, from for Bigfoot's sure. end. Yeah. But this kicks off some of the wonderful diversions that help make Inherent Vice as wild and weird as it is, because he gets a phone call then from Hope Harlingen, played by Jenna Malone. Yes. And this scene is so funny. Yeah, I can remember. Actually, it will always sort of stick with me, I think, seeing this in the theater, and when he looks at the picture and reacts, I think that caught me off guard and made me laugh in a way. (laughs) Like, so unexpected. It's a great scene from top to bottom, though, because he plays sort of this wonderful straight man, like reacting to Hope's story as if what she's saying is acceptable and normal. And it's like fucked up and weird. (laughs) And then he's taking a sip from his coffee when she goes, there was puke and shit everywhere. And he kind of like coughs back into his cup. Oh, yeah. And he's just kind of going, yep, yep. Okay. I actually think that she is, like, really strong in this scene, Jenna Malone. She's got Like, those, her delivery of this story. Yeah, she has those huge fake teeth from losing them from heroin That's use. That's right. Do you like my chompers? Corey and I should have met cute, but we actually met squalid. Down at Oscars in San Ysidro. Oh, boy. I had just run into this bathroom stall without checking first, and I already had my finger down my throat to vomit up this big balloon of dope I had just scored and there Koi sat gringo digestion I'm about to take this giant shit 
And we both let go at the same time, and there's just vomit and shit all over the place. And with my head in his lap, and to complicate things, he had this heart on. Sure. One thing leads to another, and we pretty much started shooting up together on a regular basis. <laughs> then along comes the Lamethyst. stomach for it, but this is what we had her looking like. Everybody helpfully pointed out how the heroin was actually coming through my breast milk, but ah! mm -hmm. <laughs> who could afford formula, you know? It's a long way from where we are now. Yeah, no, it seems like you're doing real good. I'm a drug counselor. Sorry? A drug counselor? Uh-huh. Trying to talk kids in a sensible drug use. <laughs> what do you think of my chompers? Hmm. You like them? No, no, I, yes, yeah. No, I hadn't noticed. Heroin sucks the calcium out of your body like a vampire. If you use it for any length of time, your teeth just go all to hell. And that's the good part. So listen, this, uh, this thing that happened to your husband, how, how can I help you? Mr. Sportello, I don't think Koi's really dead. What? Did you ID his body? No. Whoever was it called just said that one of his band members did that. I mean, whoever called? What, the police? I mean, it's, it's uh, supposed to be next of kin. And then this deposit shows up, close to his disappearance. Interesting song. Why would this big deposit just suddenly appear in my account? I went to the bank. I talked to the bank manager for an hour. He kept saying over and over, you just lost your deposit slip. You just lost your deposit slip. You just lost your deposit slip. And I don't lose deposit slips this big. Do you have a spare picture of Koi I can borrow? That I do have. So she tells doc about her dead husband koi who she doesn't really think is dead and she has several reasons for this including a large bank deposit you lost your deposit slip you lost your deposit went slip. into her account the day that he went missing or dead quote unquote she was never called to id the body she was told that a member of his band did he's like a <laughs> saxophone player it's usually next of kin and there is a connection to shasta where she picked them up hitchhiking and stayed in contact with koi which leads you down a whole other path of like well what does that mean the whole thing about <laughs> the band the boards or whatever yeah. and like none of them know the other members of the band because <laughs> it's changed so many times yeah i was just thinking about the polka band from home alone yeah, for right. some reason <laughs> sort of leech has some key narration here which i've sort of referenced and danced around the refusal to believe that someone you know has died or disappeared she specifically says this that when dopers of this age range yeah. found out their friends or someone they had gone to school with died they often made up alternate stories to explain why they weren't around well this whole thing of the term dopers like they're, they're using that in this movie just to describe smoking weed it seems no like. no they're using it for everything okay because there's a lot of heroin well that's talk the thing in this. yeah you right. Other I mean, people... it'd be pretty hard to die from an overdose of oh, weed. Wait. 
No, sorry. Just I'm more talking about like Doc and his crew. Well, she does say that. I know it's so, confusing like though because and, she says uh, at the beginning of the movie that Shasta liked Doc because he was the only doper she knew that didn't use heroin. Right. So yeah, you could I guess be a doper without the heroin. I, it, yeah, it's kind of just one of those terms that gets used for everything. Yeah. I, well, I love when he's talking to Coy later about how um is it Hope Harlan? Yeah. How she's clean and he's like, how does she do it? This is after he said that he was clean. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot of like subtle little jokes that don't even seem like jokes until you think about them, and you're like, that's kind of funny. (laughs) So basically, in addition to this little journey that Shasta has sent him on that has led to the death of Glenn Sharlock and being tied into that, now he's seemingly unrelatedly been pulled into this Coy Harlingen thing, only to find out eventually that Coy is tied in with all this too. And so... How does this all happen? And it's like, well, the plausibility in these detective noir stories never really matters. It's just getting you from one thing to the next. Oh, yeah. The web of all of these different things connecting is sort of what makes it interesting and unique. But the plausibility, like how realistic is this, doesn't really matter. Oh, sure. Next, he goes to see Sloan, who is Mickey's wife, who's carrying on this yeah affair with her spiritual coach named Riggs Warbly I'm in on Sloan I think she's kind of a babe I thought it was funny when Riggs made some joke about small bills (laughs) sequential and she's like I'm sorry he's always making terrible jokes I was like that's me yeah and Riggs is you (laughs) that's me on the podcast I'm like I'm sorry he's always making terrible jokes (laughs) yeah I wish I had a body like Riggs I wish I had a body like Sloan yeah Yeah, this scene is very strange. The whole point of it is to try to trick her into revealing the name of an institute where potentially they could have put Mickey if the scheme that Shasta had been referring to had actually played out. And in a way, that is exactly what happens. Right. For whatever reason, he doesn't follow up on it until way later. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) There's the housekeeper named Luz. There's... The LAPD basically just having a barbecue and jumping in the pool oh, rather yeah. than actually just investigating all day party. her missing husband. Lou's just like um, shaking her ass right in Doc's face at one point. Yeah, she's just this like oversexed yeah. woman who seems to be pretending to be a housekeeper. Well, I, I love really the part like... later that when like Shasta's like, we all just love Mickey, like me, Sloan, Lou's. <laughs> I mean, again, this was like some life. Well, Lou's was... does say that. He only fucks her in the shower. Yeah. She never got to do anything on that groovy bed. Right. And she's about to fuck Doc, Poor but Liz. then Sloane, like, calls Luz away. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's just a wild scene at the Wolfman Estate, and no one seems that concerned about where Mickey is. They're like, sure. oh, he's missing, yeah. but, you know, whatever. Well, he does whatever he wants. And this is the perfect example of just getting your main character from one woman to flirt with to the next. Oh, yeah. He's just randomly making out with Luz for a second, and then she's out of the movie, and then it's just on to the next thing. Well, and this is where we see the uh, aforementioned tie collection. Yes. And I love the backstory. You're just like every chick that's a part of Mickey Wolfman's life was <laughs> posing nude and being stitched onto a tie. Yeah. <laughs> a custom tie with their name. Where would you wear ties like that if you were a respected businessman? I, listen, it was a different time in 1970. Bigfoot arrives at the house, and this part... I don't really understand what's happening, although it is funny. I guess, is this just some point where Sportello's just like, well, Bigfoot's here, so I just have to fuck with him? 
I don't know. It feels like maybe when they do shit like this, because what happens is Sportello basically through ESP senses right. Bigfoot arriving. Then he runs outside and then jumps onto Bigfoot's cop car for no apparent reason. Yeah, and, and, Bigfoot and then Bigfoot just like stomping on. Yeah, him. drags him off the car and just starts like stomping him. And I'm like, is this a show they put on so no one knows that they know each other and have this and collaborate? Like, yeah, I don't know. But after this all plays out, we meet Penny. Doc's part-time squeeze, played by Reese Witherspoon. Yeah, definitely some inspired casting here. I have to on say, the Walk the Line connection. True. I guess, I guess Joaquin and Reese are like really close and have like this unspoken way of communicating that they just kind oh, of wow. know what they're gonna do and they act like really well together. And PTA and Joaquin were like, "Well, we should write more scenes for her," and she was like, "No, no, it has to be the way that it is." Oh wow! She only worked on the movie for like four days. Yeah. She's good in every scene she's in, though. I'll say that. Yeah. I like whenever he's trying to explain himself, and he was like, I was calling day and night. And she's like, day and night? Really? Like <laughs> The way she's talking <laughs> when he's talking is really funny. Now, I-, I will say, I mean, you're looking at Doc's life and being hung up on this Shasta character, and certainly there's a lot to like there, but I mean, Man. I- if Penny was in my life... <laughs> You know how it works. I do, yeah. <laughs> There's nothing more relatable to me. I know. Than this. <laughs> I really get into the scene where he's talking to her about coming over, and he suggests that she could come over to wash his feet. <laughs> she goes, ew. Ew. But I could bring you a pizza. I'm like, oh my gosh, is this my dream girl? She's sort of going to get involved in this investigation. She definitely- Also willing see- to hang him out to dry- well, yeah. She seems like she has some jealousy, though, over Shasta Fake. She's kind of grilling him about when they stop seeing each other. And then he lies and says that Shasta Fake called him rather than came over. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so the FBI is involved now, and they're investigating Khalil. So, yeah, she sets up Doc basically to get pulled into a room with the FBI to answer questions about Tariq Khalil. So what is the deal with Tariq Khalil? Never really explained. Unclear. Is it all just a coincidence that he sent him looking for Glenn Sherlock at the same time that he got pulled into all this other stuff? I was trying a lot to, of coincidences here. I don't know. I was trying to come up with like, well, what is happening here? But I don't know. It might just be a coincidence. I'm, I I couldn't really because if Tariq Khalil was making all that shit up, then it doesn't explain why Adrian Prussia and the rest of the Golden Fang people felt like they needed to kill him, Glenn. Because yeah. the explanation for his murder is that he was basically doing side deals, going into business for himself, and working with black nationalists, which, of course, conflicts with the whole idea of the Aryan Brotherhood. <laughs> right, yeah. Most so, of them frown upon that. It seems like it's legitimate that there was some connection between Glenn and Tariq, and so, yeah, it it is just a big coincidence, maybe. I do enjoy this sequence with the FBI guys, though. Yeah. Uh, what's going on with all of them picking their noses? Yeah, it seemed like there was some sort of a signal going on there when he was like hitting on things that later are confirmed by yeah. Sancho when he's talking about how they want to sell Vegas strip properties to non-Italians, which if, I think is a reference of course to the mob owning right. much of the casino business. That scene, which comes later is also very funny because Sancho's like, they want to sell casinos to non-Italians. Like when Howard Hughes bought the desert Inn, and then there's like a long pause and Doc is like, Howard Hughes is Italian. <laughs> and Sancho just closes his eyes like, oh my God. <laughs> Jade reaches out to Doc, leaves him a note at his office, 
telling him where she works, apologizing, I guess, for whatever happened. She says, <laughs> yeah, I guess being a willing witness to put him at the scene. She works at Club Asiatique or something like that, and yeah. she wants him to come see her. She needs to tell him something. She also writes, beware the golden fang at the end of the note. Right. This is the first time that anyone has said golden fang. It kind of becomes this thing that looms over the rest of the movie that's, like everything else, not really explained. Yeah, yeah. It's just sort of a generic thing. When he goes to see her at the club, she reveals the setup at Sherlock's murder. She says that she figured it wasn't a big deal because... <laughs> he was going to be there anyway and she w- didn't really feel like she was doing anything doc just kind of seems there. bewildered by this and goes yeah I, w- I don't know what you're talking about like <laughs> why are you apologizing i don't even know what what you're saying and she mentions puck beaverton and his swastika tattoo and this guy of course will be tied in with glenn and adrian prussia and everything else and unfortunately probably shasta as well oh boy which is another piece of evidence which we'll get to later that she might be real the whole time because there's the thing with the necklace which wouldn't really make sense to me true if she's not real but whatever we'll get there the golden fang it might be a boat might be an indo-chinese heroin cartel might be a rehab center might be a syndicate of dentists together for tax purposes all housed in a building in the shape of a tooth or it could be all of these things and more can't stay out here long. This is Golden Fang territory, and a girl don't necessarily want to get into difficulties with those folks. Meet the schooner Golden Fang. The Golden Fang. Golden Fang? She's not just a boat, Doc. She's much more than that. A boat? An Indo-Chinese heroin cartel? A vertical package. They grow it, bring it in, step on it, run stateside networks of local street dealers, and take a separate percentage off of each operation. What I need to know is who are these friends of Glenn's who are arranging the arms deal? Bunch of hunky-ass dentists down on Lower Sunset, working a weird building. Look like a big-ass tooth. Golden, the fucking golden thing. Is it Chinese? I figured, uh, you being Chinese. Wait, where did you tell Sandra you were from again? On the face of it, one more RD. One less junkie, case cleared. And on the not face? Mr. Sportello, I don't think Koi's really dead. Overdoses are good for business. Now he's working as a snitch for the LAPD, working undercover for Vigilant California, and maybe the Golden Fang, the outfit, not the boat. Do you detect a common thread here, Lawrence? I can't trust any of these people. Whatever those people are into, it's not helping junkies get back on the straight and narrow. Golden Fang operators, 12 o'clock, fast approaching. The Dr. Blatinoid had puncture wounds on his throat consistent with bites from canines of a mid-sized wild animal. That's what the coroner told me. This is the fucking golden thing you're about to rip off, man! The fully fucking weirdos that kill people! And then this deposit shows up. Ah! Is that a swastika on that man's face? That's an ancient Hindu symbol, meaning all is well. It brings good fortune, luck, and well-being. I go for working myself into a fucking brain freeze here. Like this is too much. In an interview with the New York Times, Paul Thomas Anderson said, The Golden Fang to me is just a depository for whatever angers you. A brownstone goes down in your neighborhood and a crummy condo goes up. Golden Fang Enterprises, probably. Oh boy. So it is just the I get it. Changing of things. The changing of times for insidious purposes. Yeah. 
And I think that's the main underlying theme here. Certainly heading into a period of time where everything is changing, the dichotomy of our hero, Doc Sportello, with his long hair and bare feet juxtaposed with Bigfoot Bjornsson with his flat top hair and suits. And the civil rights violation twinkle in his eye. That's right. (laughs) Yeah, well, we learned in Days and Confused that the 60s were awesome and the 70s were a bummer. That's true, yeah. Well, that's what I keep thinking. Coming to terms with that. It feels like there's a lot of negativity about the 70s being portrayed here or, or heading into the 70s from the late 60s but i'm always thinking you know days and confused seem pretty fun <laughs> there is the tendency of of people to not really appreciate what they're living in at the time it's true yeah like what do you think in 20 or 30 years when they're making movies about the time we're living in now like a trump presidency but, I mean, the war will probably be over okay they'll look back at that <laughs> the 2020 coronavirus is coming uh super bowl halftime show <laughs> and just like wow j-lo look good at 50 after doc speaks with jade and she warns him about the golden fang which she says is i like when he's like is it a band and she's like you wish (laughs) yeah after he speaks with jade coy harlingen himself walks out of the dark this is actually uh owen wilson this is one of the parts of the movie that i just enjoy for the aesthetic of it i think it's really cool how they shot this scene like on this dock with in like the fog yeah and like the way that they're interacting like whispering to each other and like lighting a cigarette yeah the first time that we saw this movie it really just threw me for a loop oh yeah and i'm just like okay he is alive and we found it out (laughs) literally like five minutes after the fact (laughs) okay He's seeking Doc out, not knowing that all the while his wife, Hope, has already hired him as well. He says he's been staying at a house in Topanga Canyon. He's just like the easiest private investigator to find. A lot I of guess. people uh, look he's at He's like him the up. hippie guy, the guy that yeah. are the people that are in the scene. Right. That's true. Yeah. You also have to think in a pre-internet age, I mean, people were probably more prone to using... It was all word of eyes. mouth business. A lot of recommendations what in the mean, hippie like, you, world. There wasn't as much information available to a regular person, so you needed to rely on private eyes to find people and to yeah, track you stuff Google down. It. Yeah, there was just no way to, to do anything. <laughs> I don't know how people were living. Oh, well, that's the Seems thing, crazy. though. It's like you couldn't Google what you were trying to find, but you also couldn't even Google uh, a private investigator. Yeah, so, so like... Where are you going to find one? Hope says that she got the number from a head shop. So apparently he's like putting his number up on like bulletin boards or something. Coy will later reveal that he's a police informant, kind of playing both sides of the fence, and now he's mixed up with dangerous people who seem to also be related to the Golden Fang. He fears for his life and just wants to be able to go home. This is part of the movie that really confuses me. I'm never really sure, especially when eventually (laughs) at the end of the movie when Doc is negotiating for Coy's freedom and Doc says to Crocker Fenway, he says, I can square it with the Heat or the police, but I'm basically negotiating so that you can take care of the other half of this, which right. is like the Golden Fang. And I'm like, well, what? How, what is the relationship? I know that like the LAPD is sort of in bed with the Golden Fang, at least as far as like hiring Adrian, Adrian Prussia, but like... What exactly is Coy doing? I, I, I'm very I confused as to like what is happening. How did here. this like proposition come into his life exactly? Who knows? Yeah, it speaks to because he says like he was accepting it because it was like the only way that he was gonna well, separate this, it, from his family just, and 
not have his kid look the way it looked anymore? Well, think of it like how things play out in Under the Silver Lake when things get crazy. Yes. This is just confirming a conspiracy theory. Right. That these nefarious groups, which of course would include something like the LAPD and also this group called, what is it, Vigilant America or whatever it's called. Okay, yeah. That they would recruit people from within, quote-unquote, the scene and weaponize those people against them, unbeknownst to the people in the scene. So the scene later when he's with Penny, Doc, I mean, watching on TV, Sleeper Coy, cell agents. harass Richard Nixon at a rally. Yeah. As Penny says, it, it gives him street cred to then be able to infiltrate any group. Right. And so that confirms like a paranoid theory that like there are people within your friend group working against your interests this is also at a time where if you noticed aryan brotherhood black gorilla family all these militant groups are referenced right there's a lot of like crazy activism going on because of vietnam the civil rights movement black panthers etc 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 yeah, a lot of there's a lot of fear forces. and mistrust going on with the government. Oh, sure, yeah. You could say like, well, this seems not really plausible. Like, why would they go after this random saxophone player? But that, of course, is what the whole point is—that he's just this guy. Yeah. And all of a sudden, he's a symbol for the potential to infiltrate <laughs> I these love, groups and like, work the against life them. That he is like leading to, and I love how he just like continues to pop up in like every scene for the rest of the movie. <laughs> well, he says that he got clean. I guess he does think that he got clean from chris skyladon yeah which we haven't even got to that yet. right which we should mention that that is the name that sloan gave way back when i mean like we said there are a lot of details and sometimes we're gonna miss something things come full circle so chris skyladon is the name of a place up in northern california that's like a rehab center but it turns out to really be more like a cult and and it's all tied in with this a fictional crazy, actor, uh, actor named Burke Stodger, which... Yeah, this doctor that works there and is, like, giving the tour later. Yeah. It's, like, insane. And Sloan, when we were at the Wolfman house, said that Chris Skyland meant serenity. But we're going to find out later that's not true. Right. All right, so I just wanted to get that out. So back to Coy and Doc. While Jade referred to the Golden Fang as an international drug smuggling operation, Coy and then later Doc's lawyer Sancho believe Golden Fang to be a mysterious boat, one that imports and exports things, is kind of a secretive thing, and one that was boarded by none other than Shasta Fay the last time it sailed, which we'll find out that later. Yeah. And this all has something to do with Burke Stodger. Too many uh, pieces of information. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot crazy. coming at you. Yeah. So Burke Stodger is this fictional movie star, and he's the original owner of the boat. He's the poster boy, though, for Reformation, transformed from a blacklisted communist to a committed reactionary. And this is this is key, though, because this is really what a lot of this movie is about. It's the brainwashing ever-present behind the scenes in Inherent Vice, because it's more than just the vertical integration, as Jade puts it, of the right. heroine. The treatment for heroin, the treatment for losing your teeth for the heroin, et cetera, et cetera. It's also this idea of what I said at the beginning about the co-opting of the culture and selling it back to them. Yeah, yeah. And profiting off of this anti-war, peace and love, whatever, and basically the sinister nature that's creeping into it with skinheads and swastikas and all this other shit. Yeah, sort of like the anti-hippie movement yeah, at this Yeah, the bad point. trip yeah. of heroin replacing pot and LSD, and just things taking a turn for the worst. Because when Sancho explains all of this stuff about Burke Stodger to 
doc in a funny scene at a restaurant where they order like the most horrific sounding things I've ever heard. <laughs> and even the waitress is like, you're going to want to get good and fucked up. Before oh, that's this right. Meal. Yeah. Some of the stuff that Sancho says, though, here is kind of key, in my opinion. He says it's a horror story talking about this. He's talking about what happens to the boat, but he could be talking about what happens to the culture. Oh, true. What's happened to the movement? What happened to the country? What happened to Shasta? And he later says she's not just a boat dock. She's much more than that. Okay. And this is all somehow tied to Wolfman and this Vegas deal. In the book, there's a whole Vegas trip that Doc goes on that is completely removed from the movie. The FBI wants white owners on the strip. This seems like it's never specifically said, although he does say non-Italian. So it seems like kind of an anti-organized crime maneuver by right, the FBI. Okay. You could see that being a, a thing at the so time. So they're concerned. That's why the FBI is so concerned about what the fuck is going on with Mickey Wolfman. Because Mickey Wolfman, there's all these rumors swirling that maybe he's going to give his money away. There's whatever the fuck Shasta was talking about. <laughs> this plan to steal his money. They're, the the FBI suddenly got very concerned with Mickey Wolfman and his money. Because they had a very specific plan that they wanted to right. enfold. And now it seems threatened. One thing that's funny about this movie is like there'll be a scene of Doc with a character and then he'll be back at his house and then that character will immediately call him on the phone. It <laughs> happens like three or four yeah, times. Yeah. So after the scene at the restaurant with Sancho, Sancho immediately calls him and that's when he tells Doc that Shasta Fay was spotted on the Golden Fang. And somehow this is all Which you are like connected. Who, who's reporting this? He says the the Department of Justice, but you're like, who? Who is that? And they're talking to him? He seems insane. <laughs> this marine lawyer? <laughs> marine lawyer. As Bigfoot says, we could work pirates into it if that would make it more comfortable for you. <laughs> the man, the government, the darker element on the fringes that has been creeping into all of these parties and all of these scenes. Coy Harlingen and Shasta Faye Hepworth, they're swept up into it, swept into something. A secret cultural war being waged with heroin and misinformation. This seemingly is what's all <laughs> boiling together. They're really throwing a lot at you here. Yeah, and I think that's what makes the movie cool and the story idea cool. But I guess it, it is like a lot of the same idea. It's the idea of what happened post-Charles right. Manson when things turned dark and what ended the hippies, the peace and love, the 60s, the ideals what turned the the boomer generation into the most hated generation yeah that's now. right like what happened what what went wrong with these people why are they like this yeah the darkness behind you have a little fun with some drugs but like once you start going down that road of heroin yeah a dark element got invited into the party and fucked everything up even worse that's right clancy sherlock glenn's sister comes to see Doc, she's played by a porn star named Belladonna. I like this broad. They sort of... What did you say? I like this broad. Broad. <laughs> yeah. Another scene where there seems to be hallucinations in the middle well, of it. I, love I don't actually just feel like, like she slaps him. At this point, he's just like sitting in a doctor's office using nitrous oxide. Yeah. <laughs> well, did you notice that he slaps himself at one point? Yeah, yeah. And then when she, when he's like kind of making a weird, awkward move on her, a hand reaches out and slaps him across the face as if like she slapped him. But then when it cuts to her, she's just like reclining back. Oh, that's right. So it does feel that's like strange, there's these yeah. things that he's just imagining are happening. But 
she's coming to find out what happened to and Gwen. And she's like, you know, talking about her brother who died and he's just like laughing. <laughs> yes, yeah, doesn't seem like she really liked him all that much, but she still wants to find out what happened to Glenn and she mentions that Puck Beaverton switched shifts with him. She okay. also connects Shasta to Glenn, revealing that Shasta was in love with Glenn. Man. So this is the first indication of Shasta was up to a lot of no good. <laughs> yeah. This is the first indication that there's like some fucked up shit going on beyond just the Mickey Wolfman stuff. And she kind of explains this later. And it, I mean, it feels like the tip of the iceberg, what she says. But, oh, you yeah. know, I mean, there's an allusion to what was going on, I guess. Not something you want to hear if you're <laughs> about Doc. a girl you're in love with. <laughs> Doc gets a postcard, though, from Shasta Fay. And this note is a note of regret and longing. And it's a reference to a memory of doc and her with a ouija board sort of ouija's there it's this beautiful delicate flashback sequence that ends with them running through the rain yeah i think the big key element here is like they're chasing drugs but like they don't get drugs but still find happiness in a moment (laughs) yeah and journey through the past by neil young is playing it's one of the best scenes in the movie for sure I'm going to read another Kim Morgan quote later on that will address this, but it ties in with what happens later, so I'm saving it. Shortly after this movie, this song definitely became one that I just enjoy driving around in my car by myself listening to. Oh my god, yeah. (laughs) This whole soundtrack is awesome, really. Yeah. Johnny Greenwood or something that does... He did some of the original music for... Radiohead, yeah. Yeah. There's some original stuff, but there's also cool songs from like some soul singers, from Cannes, from a few other bands. The first time seeing this movie, like, this is a great scene, and I loved it. And yet, the point of it, though, completely blew by me. And I was, you know, it's something that, like, you kind of have to, like, think about for a minute. But the address from the memory. Oh, yeah. The, basically, the Ouija board gives them a phone number to call for dope when I'm assuming is, I don't even know if, what they're looking for. Weed? I, right. Coke? It, it feels knows? like they're um, fiending in a way that it would be more than weed. But we never see him do heroin, Exactly, right? yeah. I'm not really sure what the drug is that he does with Rudy Blatt. I thought that it was just cocaine, but yeah, it, it feels like almost a relapse. Either way, yeah. in this memory, <laughs> Please. the Ouija board gives a phone number. They call this number. It's like a pre-recorded message telling dopers to come to this specific address because this is a time a great drought going on where nobody can score. So Doc the and great drought. Shasta run in the rain to this place, and it's an empty lot. But they seem like they're having such a great time anyway. And I do love the narration here where Sordali is just describing kind of this wistful feeling about how it was like this positive, fun memory. But at the same time, it was towards the end and she She was was already already halfway out the door. Yeah, it's just a great narration there. Yeah, and it definitely like hones in on a very specific feeling (laughs) that I, you know, haven't had in a long time. But certainly there were times in my life. But the address from the memory takes Doc to a large building there now, which is shaped like a golden fang. Yeah, kind of ridiculous So the implication is that she brought this memory up on purpose to point him in that direction. Okay. I guess. Shasta Faye guiding him through. Everyone's giving him these clues, but the thing is, they could not be clues just as easily. That's That's the whole thing with like the paranoid conspiracy stuff. It's like, is this stuff really connected? Or is he seeing connections that aren't actually there, which is kind of the same point of Under the Silver Lake in a way. Right. It's like, is this all connected or is it in his head? It's another diversion. Yeah, I love when they're pulling up to this place and Dennis is going to be. He's like, I'm going to get a pizza. Yeah. 
And then he comes back with the steering wheel. He's right. like, I don't know how to drive. Yeah. <laughs> it's tangentially tied to everything else, but it's it really is like another diversion. Dr. Rudy Blatnoid is this dentist played by Martin Short. It's this insane Seemingly character. living just this wild professional life. They make this is your day-to-day to job. Like a Bond villain, but in a comedic way, just doing drugs and like fucking and all kinds of chicks. the fact that he's just like this mundane like dentist. Yeah, that's just, what, right. so funny. This insane predatory guy hooked on dope, pussy crazed. I love, though, when Doc first shows up in his office and he, like, gets out of that, like, elevator or whatever right into his <laughs> office. And he's like, I assume you have some sort of ID. <laughs> it's card. Yeah, that was, like, from Club Asiatique. And yeah. he's like, what is this? Is this Oriental? Is right. this Chinese? And he's like, well, I thought you would know since you are also Chinese. <laughs> and Blatnoid is just like, what are you talking about? Yeah. <laughs> Has no idea what's happening. Right. I, yeah, like... Sportello and I guess uh, Joaquin Phoenix's performance of Sportello, just this ability to just go with it, yeah. even though it's still so awkward and so clearly not right, he's like able to just sort of kind of, mm, mm-hmm, and like through everything. Yeah. This is the whole scope, though, of Golden Fang, which we mentioned here. The heroin, the treatment center, which we're going to see later. And also the dental aspect of it, which was revealed through hope that heroin sucks calcium from your body like a vampire and she had to get new teeth. It seems to somehow all be connected. Yeah. Right. But again, it could be just connected in Doc's head. Yes. He could be like putting things together that don't actually go together. He leaves the office and he sees all of these like dental students and all this stuff. And when he comes back in, there's this girl sitting there. And I, I want to try to remember her name. Japonica? Japonica Fenway. <laughs> and Doc recognizes her as a previous case she was a runaway daughter her father was crocker fenway this rich again with these like weird coincidences and she mentions that she escapes from a booby hatch that her parents send her to which just so happens to be named chrysylodon which is the same place that sloan brought up so everything seems oddly connected dr rudy Japonica, you promised me. You Did you not promise me? What are you doing here? I escaped again for you. Oh, okay. Look at the greedy little hippie snorting away, are you? Your parents know you're here? The Fenways, they were heavy-duty South Bay money and led lives of unusually high density and often incoherence. Her father, Crocker, also known as the Dark Prince of Palace Verdes, was a lead lawyer at the office of Voorhees Kruger, who had given Doc his first paying gig as a P.I. Man, like, I'm sorry. See, you just wanted to say this. That's my steering wheel? I don't know how to drive. Oh, man, I thought you said you... Hi. Smile maintenance chick. How lovely. Miss Fenway may appear a little psychotic today. Groovy. What? It's groovy being insane, man. Where you at? It's not groovy to be insane. Japonica here has been institutionalized for it. Okay, come on, uh, Dinas. We gotta figure out a way back to the beach. Hey, if you need a ride, I'm heading that way. Uh, cop friendly, everything cool with your ride, Japonica? Brake lights, license plates, so yep. forth? Yeah, a-okay. Mind if I tag along with you guys? Contingencies of the road and so forth? Yeah, yeah, that's a good idea. Maybe we should just do a bit more of that for the road? Yes, yeah, you owe it. Excuse me. Come on. 
What's in that bag you're stuffing under Doc's seat? Pay no attention to that bag. Only make everybody paranoid. Though he may have rescued Japonica from a life of dark and unspecified hippie horror, apparently restoration to the bosom of her family had been enough to really drive her around the bend. Oh, fuck! Fuck it! Fuck! I can't! Okay, we are so fucked! I got so many... Are you the great beast? No, no, that's, that's, that's a, a policeman. You know you're driving without your headlights, ma'am? But I, I can see in the dark. Perhaps you shouldn't be driving then. I'm, I'm going to need to see all your IDs, please. And what is this all about, sir? Any gathering of three or more civilians is now considered a possible cult. What? It's Charlie Manson again? Criteria, cri criteria includes reference to the Book of Revelation, males with shoulder-length hair or longer, and endangerment through an attentive driving, all of which you all have been exhibiting. Oh, I don't think so. Man, listen, this is a Mercedes. Okay. It's only painted one color. Y'all hang tight. That should count for something. That's a good point. Okay. Okay. I actually gonna have a heart attack. Actually, my heart is racing like a little, little, little. Huh? Uh, what? Yes, sir. I'm gonna hand these in, Mr. Sportello, and as long as there are any wants or warrants I don't know about, I won't hear any more about this. For some reason... Dinas and Doc get a ride with Japonica back to the beach and Blatnoid tags along. They get pulled over. <laughs> right. This scene is really strange. Charlie Manson's mentioned again. Yeah. But the part that doesn't make sense to me, and I'm it's just one of those weird things that's thrown in there. Japonica's driving. I know. They give their IDs to the cop. Right. The cop walks away when he comes back. Doc is in the driver's seat. And yeah. Japonica's in the passenger seat. This is actually a great scene. I love that japonica the, the cop pulls him over because she's driving with the lights off and she yeah. says that she can see at night and the <laughs> cop says well then maybe you shouldn't be driving <laughs> but i love how he starts citing that they're basic like because he approaches like his hand is shaking <laughs> like his gun hand which is kind of alarming but he starts citing things like groups of three or more like males, males with shoulder length hair right citing the book of revelation yeah, he's like references to the book of revelation and at the end of it he's like all of which seem to be on display yeah. here <laughs> yeah dinas is like what charlie manson again and then he says he's like well we're in a mercedes benz and it's painted one color that should count for something <laughs> and Martin Short, I mean, we're almost underselling how funny he is. Oh, he is great in a, his in a short but memorable smoke appearance. smoking hot receptionist yeah. comes in at one point when they're back at the office. He's just he's like, there's a problem with your couch. And then he just starts taking his pants <laughs> off while he's walking He's running with his yeah, pants right. falling down. And then in this part, when the cop walks away, he's just like, I'm having a heart attack. I'm actually having a heart attack right now. <laughs> and then when Dinas is like say, doing that whole thing about the car being painted one color, he's like, well, that is true. <laughs> that should count. <laughs> so japonica i had to look this up is played by an actress named sasha pietierce okay i don't, don't know, know she's really mostly known for appearing in the show pretty little liars and i have to say oh. man i mean i'm showing wow. matt her imdb picture i mean that is I'm like in. right up yeah. my alley <laughs> i mean granted she's Cute only pretty like 24 right so when this movie came out she was probably like i don't know 18 or 19 but whatever okay so Bigfoot, this is another instance. He's literally just with Blatnoid, and then the cop eventually lets them go, probably because Japonica is this rich girl from money. That's right. And then it, the next scene is Doc back at his house, and Bigfoot calls telling him that Dr. Rudy is dead. 
He was found <laughs> next to a trampoline. That's right. Yes. <laughs> Dennis on trampolines. Eventually, it's revealed that he had fang bites in his neck. Well, and like, here we go again, because it's not enough that Doc is coming to next to the dead body of Glenn Charlock. Now, Bigfoot's like, you're one of the last people he's seen with. Yeah. About. I think Bigfoot knows, though, that Doc is not really doing any of this. Right. He's just, like, keeping him involved with it, making sure that he's seeing the pieces, I guess. Okay. Bigfoot also provides help, though, with the Coy Harlingen matter. Because Bigfoot points him in the direction of Puck Beaverton. So we've heard Puck's name come up a few times. We haven't met him yet. But he ties Coy's dealer, this guy named El Drano, to Puck. And Puck to Adrian Prussia, who Doc has had dealings with in the past. It just so happens that the time that he referenced to Tariq about getting shot at was that time with Adrian Prussia. And he even says to Bigfoot here, I feel like there's a past between you and Adrian Prussia that you're not telling me. Because he's sensing for the first time maybe that bigfoot is like yeah. pushing him in a certain direction this scene is insane by the way with bigfoot like ordering these pancakes Moto pancake. <laughs> <laughs> yeah he's like yelling in japanese they aren't as good as my mom's pancakes but you can't beat the respect you well, get what here. i come here for is respect yeah. <laughs> and doc's like you didn't get enough of that from your mom right <laughs> people who haven't seen this movie who somehow are still listening to this although i can't imagine i don't know how yeah are probably like this movie sounds ridiculous insane. and terrible yeah <laughs> it is ridiculous but even if you can't follow the story there's a lot of great things going on here but i mean there's so many just funny parts throughout it yeah i'm not really sure if doc was planning on going up to chris Skylodon at this point anyway or if he makes the decision once sort of liege tells him here that Chryskylodon does not mean serenity, as Sloane had told him earlier, but rather animal tooth made of gold. Oh, boy. And I like how Doc just kind of can't even look at her, and then she just, like, pats him on the arm. She's like, you're doing good, Doc. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Just, like, this encouragement to keep at it. (laughs) Because, I mean, in all fairness, why would he know that? I I don't know. Yeah, at a certain point, you are just like, what is he working on anymore? (laughs) It's one of those things that just keeps getting bigger and bigger and snowball effect the conspiracy is more vast so doc makes the trip up to ojai where this chryskylodon is located and it turns out that it's actually more like a cult than like a rehab center they're all wearing like those robes and it's all very weird they're watching burke stodger movies again this doctor that's like going around like giving doc the tour of the place yeah when they finally see puck (laughs) is that a a swastika on that man's face and he's like no, it isn't. It's a uh, ancient Hindu symbol. That means all is well. <laughs> Which I think actually might be true. Okay. But I was feeling like, yeah, this must get be based on a, a Hindu thing. symbol yeah. that means all is well that is a swastika tattoo yeah. on your face <laughs> because of the Hindu meaning. <laughs> Koi, Puck Beaverton, also eventually Mickey Wolfman himself, they're all there. Puck, by the way, wearing Mickey's tie with Shasta's I know. Body I was like, it. how did he get his hands on that? Mickey Wolfman, by the way, played by Eric Roberts. Yeah. Always just a pleasant surprise to see him pop up in a movie. Yeah, and a very heavily tanned look. Yeah. Just sort of almost like strung out look. I mean, it's it's a very brief appearance, but yeah. it's it's cool. Probably only has like five or six lines. It turns out that Mickey is there under FBI surveillance, and he seemingly is out of his mind a yeah right bit. he's talking about the guilt over his wealth which is something that a couple of the characters have referenced throughout it yeah but he seems willing 
to be there and happy to be there and happy to be a part of this cult. And so Doc questions him about Shasta, and this is another indication that something could be dark with Shasta. Like again, none of these things confirm or deny what anything specifically, but he it's definitely there seems to be some sadness. Yeah, right. On Wolfman's face, he's like almost crying, but he doesn't really answer the question. And then when he's basically like, "Go away." Yeah, Doc. When Doc pushes him on it, he's just like, "Go away," and that ends that and mickey then afterwards unceremoniously reemerges and reunites with sloan and takes <laughs> what the Vegas deal, which we learned from the paper once again out of the blue shasta returns to doc's place now instead of her flatland gear she's wearing her attire from days gone by she's a vision from the past oh yeah she seems pretty indifferent to the trouble she's caused in the last few days she's sort of prowling around his apartment well she just has like a general indifference yeah while doc gets a call from bigfoot chess is sort of just walking around getting a beer yeah really lounging around the place now bigfoot's phone call we alluded to it earlier it seems to confirm her return that's right like anything like game of thrones or anything where characters aren't seeing things directly then their information is always subject to be questioned so if you're really pushing a theory this definitely doesn't confirm that she's alive but yeah i don't know why they would put this in there to confuse people more i mean you don't need to have it then if you want there to be more ambiguity about the reality of her existence at a certain point in the film, then why put this line in there that's going to make everything more confusing? Again, it, it makes it seem like this scene is really happening. Yeah, that that was always my take, especially when the Shasta Faye stuff first started to swell up as a theory. I kept coming back to that line as confirmation that another character was saying that she still existed and was back. But you could also say that she never dies, but that she doesn't come back. Well, that's true. Because part of it also is... She shipped off on the Golden Thing. Whether she's alive or dead is irrelevant to the hallucination that he's coming up with in his head. I mean, I think a lot of people's natural instinct is to be like, well, if she died, that would be what's causing this. But it could also just be the general sadness that she's out there, not with him. That she's fucking all of these Nazis. Right. (laughs) Who knows? Bigfoot pushing Doc more towards puck and prussia still he's like did you follow up on this yet he's really harping on it really an odd moment where bigfoot's wife just gets on the phone i love this flipping out (laughs) i think people have probably incorporated this into the evidence that bigfoot was having an affair with his partner or maybe not having an affair but was like maybe in love with him seems like there's not a lot of sex going on in their house seems like a sexually frustrated woman yelling at him uh it seems like their relationship hours of therapy fraught with yeah just a lot of but that's the thing i love internal anger like she knows who sportello is yeah but it is funny it's like bigfoot we see several scenes in the movie where he's at his house seemingly on his leisure free time yeah like making calls out to doc yeah i think their relationship is interesting, and if this podcast was going to be like seven hours long, I mean, we could really well, could be. branch into that whole thing and get into theories there. But yeah, it, it implies that their relationship is a little more complex and in-depth than what we see in the two hours and 20 minutes of the movie. Right. When Doc hangs up with Bigfoot, Doc is surprised to find Shasta now completely nude. Yeah. 
She's just slowly been getting undressed while this conversation with Bigfoot has been going on. Before I read this quote from Kim Morgan that's really long, I do want to say that when we saw this movie in the theater, I mean... This was a stunning moment. It was so quiet in the theater, I I felt like everyone could hear my heart beating through my chest. Oh, wow, (laughs) yeah, just pure excitement. (laughs) It's a wild scene. Really? Now, this scene is... It's come under some... Well... Let's be real. I mean, this movie made $14 million. It's not like tons of people were talking about (laughs) it. But it definitely had some controversy around it. People accused it of being a male fantasy or whatever. Well, Um, maybe it is that. Exactly. That's what I was thinking. I was like, well, if she's not real, then that's exactly what it is. Yeah. It may be intentionally so. But I don't know. I think the scene works for a lot of different reasons. I guess we can maybe... I'll read this quote first, then we can maybe describe exactly what happened. (laughs) To titillate all of our listeners. Doc's relationship with Shasta is like a simultaneous love and ghost story. Often she appears like an idealized dream, the way we frequently remember those we pine for, forgetting the bad times. A flashback of the two running through the rain to Neil Young's journey through the past is so overwhelmingly romantic and stirring that it feels personal, like even personal to the viewer parentheses who hasn't had this kind of idyllic memory come to them before who wouldn't want to return right back to that feeling things become perhaps real in a still dreamy sense in a powerful extended scene in which doc has an angry slash emotional sexual encounter with shasta she sits naked detailing what mickey made her do is she taunting him expressing sadness and trauma is she getting off on it it could be all of those things and not because she's a, quote, femme fatale or a bad person or merely fucking with him. It's much more nuanced than that, and so is Doc's response. This scene's been deemed controversial by some, a male fantasy even, but that takes away all of its complexity and rawness for both Doc and Shasta. It's an extraordinarily thorny moment between two people who really know one another. It's supposed to be discomforting and sad and emotionally honest. You're supposed to think about it. It also shows that this relationship is more complicated than his idealizations. So what happens here is you think like... (laughs) It feels like she's baiting him through this? Yeah, well, that's one way to read it, for sure. She's kind of talking about how she was treated by Mickey, which sounds fucked up, but she's she's expressing that she liked it. Yeah, and I mean, there's definitely a sexual tone to her delivery. Oh, yeah. She's saying she might as well have been brought in on a leash when she was with him. Oh, boy. And that she was just there with her micro mini skirts and nothing on underneath to be displayed (laughs) to the people that were with Mickey. And then eventually basically pimped out to his friends to do whatever they wanted to do. The Glens and the Pucks of the world. Yeah, and that's the connection to the bodyguards, the Glenn Sherlocks, the Puck Beavertons, what the fuck was all going on. And these, of course, are not upstanding businessmen. They're fucking skinhead Nazis. Yeah, you could read this as a couple of different things. She's using, like, the cuckold fantasy to, like, turn him on. She's baiting him to give, like, an angry response over guilt that she feels, which I think is where the male fantasy thing comes in. Because who wouldn't want their slutty ex-girlfriend that they're still in love with to come in and be it just completely new telling all these stories yeah as as a way of like asking for punishment from the person that has right. been aggrieved yeah and it, it gets tricky because i think the reason why people say it's controversial is engaging in this particular moment here is not explicitly consensual in that she doesn't actually say that even though it's clearly what she's aiming for when she lays across sure. his lap right and she basically has to like 
I mean, it is kind of like the typical guy response where you're just like sitting there like, I don't really know what to do. And she basically has to like spell it out like, oh, yeah, I know what I would do. She literally says that before he finally reacts and starts like smacking her ass. Yeah, pretty uh, unexpected. The whole way that this this, scene plays out. This scene for the record is in the book, but I can get that. But like, I think when people say that like it's a male fantasy I think they're coming at it from the perspective it's like, well, this is something that I wouldn't want to do. But what that does is discredit women who would want this. I mean, Fifty Shades of Grey aside, I mean, sure, this is, yeah. some people have different tastes sexually. It's not like he's punching her in the face. Yeah, it's a little <laughs> rough and raw. Be pretty and shocking. In real life, I think if you're going to uh, do stuff yeah. like this, there needs to be a little bit more actual consent, like well, saying it out totally. loud. But like in a movie... <laughs> I think her setting it up like that is her consent. And if you want to say that her consenting to this is a male fantasy, then I got news for you, folks. <laughs> there there are <laughs> okay. girls that would want this. <laughs> it's the truth. So if, if it's not for you, like it's not something you want to do, it's like, yeah, of course you should not be forced to do it. And Well, yeah. But I think it's okay for other people to want to do it. I don't see why it has to be like that controversial. Yeah, each their own. Come on. Yeah, I think it gets into that tricky territory, though, where it's not just a game because to she me, is saying things to make him mad and so maybe, that he will do this. Obviously, people can react to things uh, differently, but to me, she's the one that's in control. Like, this whole scene, I feel like well, she's right. I, Yeah, I dictating. agree with you, but I think what they're saying is the fantasy is that she would do this to, like, offer herself up like this okay. as atonement what, for the are things Are we going to completely did. rule out that that could happen? That's what I mean. As I mean, a society, we're just going to say that this has never happened? Matt, you're preaching to the choir. That's what I just <laughs> said. I mean, I think there are situations where either sexually the woman would want this. The sexual aspect of it is almost like secondary to the sociological aspect of it. Of Should a woman have to like apologize or be punished or, or whatever for doing yeah. the things that she wants to do. And I, I don't think that's the point of the and scene And by the way, I, I think it's sort of been established in this movie. She has to say, she's a freaky chick. I mean, she's posing nude <laughs> to be embroidered on a tie. That's what I think. I think the whole point of this scene is a conflict, but the conflict is not between Doc and Shasta. The conflict is between Shasta and Shasta and Doc and Doc. Yeah. And her conflict is the guilt that she feels over doing these things, but also wanting to do those things that she did. Okay. She clearly wasn't like forced into this life with Mickey Wolfman. She, no, she did it and liked Doc. it. Yeah. But she does have conflicted feelings about it. I think she does care about Doc. I think she feels bad for walking out on him and sort of really just humiliating him with the life and that she, she knows, went on to. Yeah, and she knows that there's no future now that Mickey's gone back to his wife and glenn is dead and let's be honest puck is scary i don't think she's gonna get married to puck beaverton so yeah it's like it's convenient that now she can come crawling back literally basically to oh boy doc yeah. there's a lot of mixed feelings about what she did and doc's conflicted because he is Do you really want to get back into this now yeah and he is typically like a live and let live cool guy but the way that PTA shoots this too is like so unique and not how you would expect this to be shot where the perspective is like where it's like right in front of her face and you see like the action like behind her so it's hard to actually see Doc's face but his facial expression changes dramatically 
when she makes that move to like lay over his lap and she's like really laying it on thick facial like expression daring to him like to do something bewildered well he just gets pissed yeah he, he is legitimately pissed and this is like a different version of him than we've seen throughout the rest of the movie true she succeeds in doing whatever she was trying to do <laughs> she brought like, it out of him after the brief very fast spanking scene he like has sex with her from behind and it's very quick <laughs> Which, yeah, good for him. Yeah. <laughs> Took care of it. I think it's interesting to watch her facial expression, like, during the sex and then immediately following the sex. And she has, like, that stray tear, like, come down her face. Oh, it's, boy. Yeah. It's a scene that's, like, very heavy with emotion. There's so much going on. And I do agree with what Kim Morgan wrote, which is why I read that quote, about whenever you just knee-jerk response of like, well, it's a male fantasy, and dismiss oh, yeah. it outright. You're kind of like ignoring the big signposts going on in the scene that are key to understanding oh, yeah, sure. their relationship, really. I mean, obviously, you can dissect this different ways, but there's definitely a lot going on here, however you want to slice it. And I don't know for sure what the intention of Thomas Pynchon was or PTA when he adapted this for the movie, so I don't know exactly what they want you to think about the reality of Shasta Fay at a certain point, but... I do feel like these scenes, that scene and then the rest of the scenes that she's in and the rest of the movie are more poignant if it's all real. Because I think so too, yeah. In his fantasy, why would she be having well, a single tear slide down her face? And that's why I was kind of pushing this theory of like this scene still being real and the stuff afterwards not really because this feels like a real moment and there is all this emotion tied up into it and it's somehow like cathartic for both of them. But it doesn't feel like this could any way lead into them really going back into having a relationship, just yeah. given all the baggage. It seems like they're kind of hanging around each other for the rest of the movie at, at times. But yeah, it's a point of no return that they've right. passed at some point. And I mean, I, I can kind of relate to yeah, that Yeah, I'm too. familiar with that. <laughs> I know the point of no return. You didn't get this necklace up north from I'm on a boat ride. Mm. Want to get three hour tour? They told me I was precious cargo that couldn't be insured because of inherent vice. What's that? I don't know. Inherent vice in a marine insurance policy is anything that you can't avoid. Eggs break, chocolate melts, glass shatters. And Doc wondered what that meant when it applied to ex-old ladies. Penny ends up providing the last piece of the puzzle. She accesses confidential files that reveal 
Adrian Prussia is often hired by the LAPD for assassinations and that one of his victims was Bigfoot's old partner, Vincent Delicato, I think is his name. Okay. And so things start to become clearer to Doc, at least in how Bigfoot factors into all of this. And if you were thinking that Prussia might be connected to the Golden Fang, this theory is, of course, confirmed when he goes to see Prussia at Prussia's office and he's a picture of that boat in his office That's in right. addition to all of those baseball bats it's a really cool set design it's something that I, i've never seen anything like yeah before. it's wild this whole sequence where doc is just like really out of his element i mean this is kind of like the first time the movie the tone in the movie changes to actually like it gets pretty like scary here yeah there's the first time it's that tense. this ominous feeling has come down on doc to the point where he might actually be in real jeopardy yeah he's a, certainly out of his element yeah as i mentioned Prussia is on the phone saying all this weird hippie jargon. He does actually remember Doc from their encounter years ago, but then just gets up and leaves when right. Puck comes in, and he's got that swastika on his face. And Prussia leaves. Puck hands Doc a joint that ends up being laced with PCP. And as he's smoking it and kind of getting fucked up and Doc not realizing that it's laced, he's noticing that Puck's necklace is the same necklace that Shasta was wearing in that yeah. previous scene, which That's implies painful. that they were together right. at some point. Now, this could very easily be used as evidence, in my opinion, that Shasta is real in that scene, because why would he have put that necklace in his fantasy on Shasta? I know. Because he does grab it from around Shasta's neck, and he confronts her, because at first she's like, I went up north, it was family shit. <laughs> and then he's like, you didn't get this necklace up north. And she's like, yeah, I was on a boat. Oh, boy. And basically confirms that she was somehow involved with whatever was going on with Mickey and Mickey's bodyguards when they went onto this Golden Fang boat. It is that thing. It's just like, man, Shasta is just the bad news. <laughs> yeah. yeah, she's a good time girl, and she's maybe not she a is. bad person, but it's too much trouble. Absolutely. There's a lot of trouble. She clearly had a dark upbringing that is attracting her to like the worst <laughs> sure. element. Yeah. People take this to mean, like, maybe when she went on this boat, she didn't come back. I think Doc himself says that at one point. Okay. He yeah. keeps asking people, like, well, did everyone come back? Okay. No one was pushed overboard, like that kind of stuff. I don't know. Where do you think this boat was going? I don't know. Probably just up the coast. Yeah. But, like, far enough out to see that they're doing all kinds of shit on the boat. Who knows? Drugs and sex. Oh, sounds like a time. Puck handcuffs Doc to a pipe when she passes out from the PCP and his plan is to OD him on that pure heroin similarly to how Coy Harlingen supposedly was killed but right. wasn't and probably how Rudy Blatnoid was killed and maybe. they're just killing Doc for sticking his nose where it doesn't belong I guess he's getting too close yeah to finding stuff out I don't know or the fact that he's shown up like confronting Adrian Prussia, Prussia directly he mentioned Delicate's name specifically, which was someone that was murdered. It seems like maybe he's just figuring out too much. When Puck goes to get the heroin, Doc manages yeah. to escape. He picks kind the of handcuffs a, with like a piece of a credit card that says Shasta Fay. Yeah, this it. was a really unexpected action sequence for me. Because you've gone so far into the movie at this point. A lot of jokes, a lot of weird parts, you know... You're confused. It's bizarre. But this action sequence, is the, there's a, a grit to it. Yeah. So Doc gets the handcuffs off. He manages to get a 
lid of a toilet tank. Wow, yeah. Which Convenient. he uses as a weapon to kill Puck when he comes back. He takes Puck's gun, shoots Prussia, and this is a side to Doc that we've never seen. So oh, yeah. shortly after this intense this sexual moment, encounter an intense violent moment. Unlocked this behavior in Doc. There's a depth to Doc Sportello that we just weren't aware of. It is a shocking explosion of violence. Who knew that Doc was so capable I in know. these types of I situations? Evidently Bigfoot. Yeah, apparently. Because Bigfoot shows up revealing that he set this encounter up, basically. And he's like, I saw you on the range. I knew you were good. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> how close well, how did, you did know Doc he was get gonna to get getting killed? And like, how did you know he was even going to get a gun? Yeah, and he was basically like, my boss has been breathing down my neck. I couldn't get involved with this. So the idea here, I guess, is that he used Doc as like his avatar to extract revenge for his partner. Here's where I may seem stupid, and I need you to explain something to me. This whole thing of him, okay, he's here. He's picking up Doc. These other two guys are dead. Now he's going to plant the heroin in Doc's car? Yeah. What is this? this- There's a couple of different ways to think about this. It seems like he's trying to use Doc as bait to pull out the rest of the Golden Fang. Okay. But you could also look at it as if somehow Bigfoot can see all of these steps ahead. And since he had been helping Doc kind of with the Coy Harlingen thing, that he's giving Doc leverage to assure Coy's freedom. Okay. Although, again, how I think the I fuck was like, would he know that that would work like that? Originally interpreting it that he was basically setting him up to be killed. Yeah, I would agree. The first time that I saw the movie, I thought that this was like a, a final twist. Like this was Bigfoot turning on Doc. And I wasn't really sure how to feel about that. <laughs> Matt just not talking into the microphone right now. Oh, I didn't hear it go. <laughs> All right. But I don't think that's the case, though. I think it's one of the first two things I said. I would prefer to think that. I don't really think that Bigfoot is actually a well, bad it seems weird person in this movie. After, it just feels that way sometimes. Yeah, well, that's the thing. It would feel weird after everything that led up to this point if all of a sudden the final moment of their relationship is that he's fucking him over, basically. Yeah, which I don't really think is what he's doing, although... Again, it's a huge gamble, and how would he know that things would play out in Doc's favor? I don't know. Yeah. Bigfoot drives away after taking Doc to the impound lot because Doc's car was impounded, and Doc discovers the shitload of heroin in his trunk, and it does feel like he's bait. Surprisingly to Doc, the person to reach out is Japonica's father, Crocker Fenway, who we have not met in the movie, but we've heard reference. Yeah. No, he ends just up super rich dude. Being a representative for Golden Fang in some capacity, he invites Doc to meet him at his club to discuss the heroin. Now, Crocker does say the only reason you just haven't been straight up killed is because you helped bring Japonica back the oh, first right. time she yeah. ran away. So this previous relationship. So how did Bigfoot know that was going to happen? I know. There's a lot of loose ends. Now, this scene is hilarious and this dude that plays crocker fenway i don't have his name right here which you know whatever. yeah he's good in this scene it's so funny because he of course is upset about dr rudy blatnoid corrupting his daughter who is now over 18 and not actually a minor but the things that he's upset about don't oh, necessarily sure. yeah. sound right when you think about it because he's like the way he talks about 
the hotel rooms that Rudy would take Japonica to, he was like, the wallpaper, the lamps. <laughs> the way he says lamps is so funny. Yeah. Just the tackiness Just of trash. the decor. Right. When Doc brings up Rudy's untimely death, Crocker's like, well, what, did you think I did it? What possible motive could I have? But then proceeds to list all of these motives <laughs> and then just kind of shrugs. Right. And it definitely relates to these people, whether it's the Golden Fang or the government or the LAPD or any of these things connected that are just above the law. Oh, yeah. Like, he could care less that people think that he killed Blatnoid or had him killed because he probably did and he knows right. nothing's going to happen. A deal is eventually reached, so instead of money... Doc asks for Coy's release from his duties, from his secret double agent duties as an informant to get him out from under the thumb of the Golden Fang so that he can return back back to to his life and his daughter. Because as Doc has mentioned to Sword of Liege earlier, the thing that's bothering him the most, the thing that's, quote, going to keep him up at night is this element of this story. Right. And it shows the kind of person that doc is that it's sort of a selfless desire to fix somebody else his hope out of this is to not get back together with shasta or to get money out of this deal well, he's just finishing a job he picks up coy at the chris Skyladen institute and drives him back down to his family well, one of my favorite shots of the whole movie and sequences is the exchange in front of that mall or whatever where oh yeah the suburban family and like yeah doc's crew yeah that's a scene where you're like oh jade's here jade and dina's hanging out we're gonna give this heroin back and the golden fang sends a mother daughter the daughter looks probably like what 15 that's right yeah the mother kind of like a hot older lady but they're very like straight looking oh yeah normal suburban and i was like thinking like oh this is just funny because it's random but then i was thinking more about it it's like well they're going to be driving around with a shit ton of heroin in their car you need to send like least suspect looking looking. yeah but they're so mean i love how like yeah (laughs) they're so mean to doc and he's like what is this and the little girl is like it's a credit card. Don't hippies have them? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, what I meant was, why is your mother handing this to me? That's right. And it's an American Express with Koi's name on it. They have like that specific message that he's supposed to yeah, tell. Yeah, like enjoy returning to the herd or something. Safe did journeys. Well. Yeah. That's journeys, plural. Yeah. <laughs> I just love that whole scene. That's like one of the funniest scenes for me in the whole movie. Yeah, I, th- I thought you were actually going to talk about the look of when he picks Koi up and like, how the camera follows them like out of it and then like turns and then the sun is right there. Oh yeah, it's that very is cool. Right, right on screen and it's almost like a a JJ Abrams lens flare That's for true, a second. Yeah. He drives Koi back to Hope and it's like the sun is setting and it looks very beautiful and the score is swelling in this very melancholic feel to it even though it's like kind of a happy moment. Yep. And Hope's like joyous reaction Doc is just kind of sitting there in the car with this Again, forlorn yeah, look you of do, like, but, well, I did something good, but it's not really going to work out that way for me. Well, yeah. In fact, let me read another quote from Kim Please. Morgan. One Let's last one here. Of Doc, she writes, quote, nothing is wrapped up for him even when he's driving off with Shasta. Nothing is for certain. Who knows what's in store? Who knows if it's really happening? Should we attempt to figure it out? Of course not. <laughs> Which is the line that they keep saying to each other right. when they're talking about they're not getting back together. 
But before he drives off with Shasta, and we're going to swing back and talk about that Please. in a minute. Let's talk very briefly about the most insane Bigfoot kicking moment. Doc's door yeah. down, them speaking in unison. They're suddenly on the same wavelength for some reason, and Bigfoot eats the marijuana. Yeah, kind I of a just insane it, moment. It's really. a very touching scene wrapped up in an absurdist way. Yeah. Because think about what Bigfoot says. He's basically reaching out because he's sad that Doc, after this got resolved with the Golden Fang and he brought Koi home, he didn't reach out anymore. Yeah, that's right. They basically stopped talking and Bigfoot was like, why didn't you... Your attempts at keeping up yeah. <laughs> lines of communication and I think have that been disappointing. It gets a little crazy here. Yeah. But Doc does recognize the sadness in Bigfoot. Maybe for the first time, he's actually seeing it clearly. Right. And it actually brings tears to Doc. He's like tears streaming down his face. And <laughs> when Bigfoot's like, You're not my brother. And he's like, Yeah, but you could use a keeper. on my door come on after a long and busy day of civil rights violations i found myself in the neighborhood and compelled to drop in just to check and see the current state of affairs at my old stomping grounds seeing as your effort to keep lines of communication have been limited to say the least well i've been busy Trying to figure out which side of the zigzag paper is the sticky sign. Give it to me. It does speak to like a whole other version of this story from Bigfoot's perspective. Right. <laughs> like what's going on there? What's his story? What are his motivations? Yeah. And I mean, you definitely get this overarching feeling that he enjoys the companionship with Doc. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It seems like they're at each other's throats and they're working against each other sometimes, but 
at the end of it, it seems like there is a friendship and something more than just using each other for tips and clues and stuff beyond just the work relationship that may have formed. And the closing scene, which was referenced in the Kim Morgan quote that comes after is driving through the fog. We have Shasta with Doc once again. This scene has always stuck with me. I mean, it's the last scene of the movie. And I remember... It has a kind of a different look to it. You're watching this thing and you care about Doc at this point and you know that for whatever reason he's obsessed with Shasta. You just can't get over this. So you do want him to have a happy ending. And so you're like, okay, well, we're at the end of the movie here. They're together. But this does not feel like a happy scene. I know, but and it's like shot weird. Like there's clearly like spotlights on his eyes. It's not there the whole time. It's there at the very end, and I yeah. feel like that was like an oncoming car or something. Oh, okay. Or a light from something. I don't know. It's weird. Like his eyes look like well, he more I, clear. Yeah, I think what you're talking about. Yeah, you're right. But he's he also looks almost towards the camera at the very end. Yeah, which adds a surreal quality to it. Right. I think it's a little more upbeat of an ending than the book. It leaves the possibility that maybe things have worked out. Although their facial expressions aren't exactly overjoyed. It's almost like they're resigned to playing out whatever's going to happen, but knowing that it's not going to last. It won't last, yeah. There's this doomed quality to it. She's going to resort to her own wild She'll eventually be mixed up with some Puck Beaverton types again. Yeah, she's just not to be with a normal guy. (laughs) Which I guess we can call Doc normal. (laughs) Well, not like a dangerous guy i guess right i don't know and they're driving through the fog and she talks about it feeling like they're underwater which people have interpreted that and this is where she talks about sortilege knowing things because doc brings up the ouija board thing again oh yeah and he's like clearly sortilege was setting us up (laughs) yeah he's like it was her ouija board we called from her house whatever like this was all something to like keep us happy and together and to give us like this fun moment and she's like no no no. she knows things (laughs) and we're like yeah she does we know we've seen her talk throughout the movie really her narration puts a lot of the movie into context for sure and it enhances a lot of the scenes and the emotions of the scenes and provides like a little bit of a backstory totally and those little bonus features on the blu-ray they also provide a little bit of extra story and a little bit more information that flesh things out a little bit but the fun thing i think yeah. about the movie is not knowing for sure what the reality Although, is but riding the emotions instead just the movie alone what does this thing run two hours and 20 minutes yeah there's a lot and in it's there crammed already. with shit yeah <laughs> there's so much going on we tried to hit as much as we could i mean i know this is a long there, yeah episode. there were sequences that we didn't we barely got into even yeah which is for the best yeah, I mean, yeah. I was going to – there were certain parts that I was going to take out entirely. At one point, this was going to be five hours if we had all your notes. Yeah, I thought, like, I'm not even going to mention Burke Stodger, but then I realized that Burke Stodger calls Koi <laughs> at the end of connects. the movie, and he's not actually dead, and he's not just the poster boy for Kreskylodon. He's, like, maybe running the Golden Fang. Yeah, yeah. And he was the guy that, like, the government maybe – switched from being a potential communist to being like the anti-subversive uh-huh. which is what the whole thing is it's like so he plays a part yeah it's basically like 
the cool people who were like smoking pot and were for civil rights turned into like the asshole republicans that are in the senate now (laughs) i mean that's basically what this whole movie is it's like how the generation was like switched to being like lame (laughs) it's just a bummer yeah it really is so yeah that's inherent vice folks yeah just a crazy movie it is awesome i mean it for me it's like just such a fun watch even if you can't put it all together a bunch of amazing performances going on here just a lot of enjoyable scenes yeah, for me, this is what the fun stuff about movies. This is this embodies all of the best stuff. It just makes you feel a lot of stuff. It looks awesome, and it's fun to interpret it, piece it together, figure it out, think about it, watch oh, right. it again, find new things in it, connect different dots, play with different theories, think about it from, like, is Shasta Fey alive or not alive? You know, just view it from different angles and, and notice different things, and there doesn't need to be a definitive way to interpret it. Oh, yeah. Some for movies, sure. you want that, but not every movie needs to be that. And this is one of those movies that is not necessarily about like one specific way. Of it's fun to talk about. about yeah. So, no recommendations this week because this has gone on long enough. Sure. We'll just remind everyone to follow the show on Twitter at Greatest Pod. We'll be Subscribe, back soon. Rate and review. And we'll just keep going, man. That's right. This one was for us. That's it for was, sure. Yes. This was a special one. I'm happy we uh, checked the box, though. Yeah, we were definitely waiting to do this one, and we finally got to it, and we really poured ourselves into it. Absolutely. I'm sure everyone's thrilled. <laughs> <laughs> we're like, enough. But if you stuck it out with us, thanks for listening. Okay, so this is what we're going to do, just 
you have to indulge me for one second. All I need you to do is look into the camera, say your name, and say what character you played. I'm Jerry Adler, and I played Hesh. Hi, I'm Lorraine Bracco. I played Big Pussy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. 